Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and what really knocked off the giant ground sloth. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. This is Will's fourth appearance on the show, and he's one of our most consistently popular guests, so I'll forego the usual guest introduction here. Today we're discussing Will's new book, What We Owe the Future, which is all about long-termism and I expect is going to make a big splash over the next month. If you already know a fair bit about long-termism or have listened to Will talk about the book on another on another podcast, you could potentially skip forward to about minute 25 or the chapter called Will's Personal Journey if you want to get to things you likely haven't heard before. But you know, the first 25 minutes is still pretty interesting whether you're new to all of this or not, and it has some stuff that would have been new to me. So I wouldn't say you should skip forward, just that you've always got that option if you prefer. Here's a teaser for two quick notices I'm going to cover in full in the outro. First, we haven't gotten as many responses to our user survey as we would like in order to be confident that we're getting a full picture of all of your experiences with 80,000 hours. So we are extending the deadline for that one by two days to give you more time to fill it out. So this year's entries will now close on Wednesday. So please go to 80,000hours.org slash survey before then if you can. We're also currently looking for a marketer to join the 80,000 hours team and applications for that close on the 23rd. If you got that role, you would have the chance to promote this podcast along with many other services that 80,000 Hours offers. You can find out about that role at 80,000hours.org slash marketer or hear a bit more about it by skipping to the outro for this episode. All right, with that tiny bit of housekeeping out of the way, I bring you Will McCaskill. Today, I'm speaking with Will McCaskill, who will be well known to many people as a co-founder of the Effective Altruism community. Will is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, Director of the Forethought Foundation for Global Priorities Research, and an advisor to the New Future Fund. In his academic capacity, Will has published in philosophy journals such as Mind, Ethics, and the Journal of Philosophy, while in his capacity as an entrepreneur, he co-founded Give What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and our very own 80,000 Hours, and remains a trustee on all those various boards. Back in 2015, he published Doing Good Better. In 2020, he published Moral Uncertainty. And now in August 2022, he's releasing his third book titled What We Owe the Future, which is the topic of today's conversation. Uh, thanks for returning to the podcast, Will. Thanks so much for having me on. Today, we are basically just going to be talking about all sorts of different aspects of long-termism, considerations in its favor, arguments against it, what it concretely implies, if anything, um, whether we should expect the future to be good or bad, whether anything we can do now can actually change the values of people hundreds or thousands of years in the future, and and so on. But before that, we should really talk about what long-termism actually is. When you talk about long-termism today, and I guess in, in the book, What We Owe the Future, what specifically do you mean by that term? Long-termism is the view that positively influencing the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. So it's about taking seriously just how much is at stake when we look to humanity's future, and then trying to figure out what are the events or challenges that could be pivotal in humanity's long-run trajectory, and ensuring that we act responsibly and carefully to navigate civilization onto a better path. Okay, so you say it's a, a top priority... Why not kind of the overwhelming priority or the, or the only, only priority? That, that might seem a natural extension of this idea. Well, there are a variety of strengths of view you could have. So one is just saying it's one of the things that we as a society should really care about. That's long-termism. Saying it's, you know, the key priority, it's the most important thing would be what I call strong long-termism. And then you could imagine an even stronger view that's saying it's overwhelmingly important. And... I think there's two reasons for just focusing on the weaker claim, just it's a priority. Firstly, is that from a practical perspective, it doesn't really make any difference. At the moment, how much does society spend trying to preserve and safeguard and, you know, navigate the world and challenges for future generations? Maybe it's 0.1% of society's resources. I think that should be higher. 
Should it be 1%, 10% more? At the moment, it doesn't really matter because <laughs> if we get to 1% of society's resources, I will be a very happy man. And then the second reason is just, you know, how confident am I in different views? I feel very confident in the weak form, just among different priorities we should have, the long-term future of our species should be one. The idea that it's the most important thing is much more controversial. And so it's, you know, something I'm kind of less happy to stand up in public and defend. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's dive straight into the case for long-termism. I guess, uh, what's, what's the number one argument you maybe want people to, to, to keep in mind in favor of having a long-termist worldview? I think the core argument is very simple. It's that future people matter morally. It's that there could be enormous numbers of future people. And then finally, that we can make a difference to the world they inhabit. So we really can make a difference to all of those lives that may be lived. Okay. I guess we should probably take those piece by piece. So the first one is just uh, the future could be really big in expectation. Uh, do you want to yeah, explain why, why you think that? Sure. So Homo sapiens have been around for about 300,000 years. If we live as long as a typical mammal species, we will survive for hundreds of thousands of years. If we last until the Earth is no longer habitable, we will last for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, if one day we take to the stars and have a civilization that is interstellar, then we could survive for hundreds of trillions of years. I don't know which of those it will be. I think we should give some probability to all of them, and as well as some probability to the near-term extinction, maybe within our lifetimes or the coming centuries. But taking that all into account, and even on the kind of low estimates, such as you know us living as long as a typical mammal species, the future is truly vast. So on that low estimate, there is about 1,000 people in the future for every person alive today. When we look at those you know, longer timescales that civilization could last for, there are you know, millions, billions, or even trillions of people to come for every person alive today. Yeah. So on, on one level, it's pretty natural for people to care about how the future is going to go. Yeah, you give, you give some nice examples of, uh, to try to make this uh, intuitive in the book. Uh, do you mind going through one or two of those? For sure. I mean, one thing is just simply just imagine you're hiking on a trail, you drop some glass, and... Suppose you know that in a hundred years' time, someone will cut themselves on that glass. Is it any reason at all <laughs> for, you know, not taking the time to clean up after yourself that the person who will be harmed lives in a hundred years' time? Or hasn't been born yet. Or hasn't, maybe hasn't even been born. And it seems like the answer is no. Or if you could prevent a genocide in, you know, a thousand years versus 10,000 years versus a hundred thousand years, and it will kill a hundred thousand people. Does it make any difference when those lives will be lived? Again, it just seems like intuitively not. Harm is harm wherever it occurs. And in that way, distance in time is quite like distance in space. The fact that someone will suffer is bad in and of itself, even if they live on the other side of the world. The fact that someone will suffer is bad in and of itself, even if they will live 10,000 years from now. So I think when we reflect on thought experiments like this, we see that, yeah, we want to give a lot of moral weight to future people. And in many other areas where um, we know we'll have long-term impact, so disposal of radioactive nuclear waste, for example, it's just perfectly common sense that the fact that this waste will be radioactive to some extent for hundreds of thousands of years, well, we should think a little bit about like how do we ensure that we're not harming people in the far future. And that just seems really pretty common sense. Yeah. And so I think there is a strong element of common sense, at least in this idea that like future people matter morally, 
that's just really a pretty common sense idea. Yeah, I think that the thing that strikes even uh, deeper for me on a, on a gut level is so, so lots of projects that we participate in, like trying to do scientific research to cure cancer or, you know, building buildings that are going to last for a very long time or, you know, writing novels that people might, might read in the future. Obviously, like part of the motivation is knowing that these benefits will, like the benefits of the work that we're doing will accrue for, for a very long time. If we just found out that humanity was going to disappear in 2040 or, you know, 2070 even, I think it would make doing scientific research at great cost today, uh, you know, doing costly innovations, building infrastructure that ideally could last for a very long time. It would make it all feel a lot less worthwhile, at least, yeah. in, at least in my mind. Absolutely. There's this proverb I really love, which is, a society grows great when old men plant seeds for trees under whose shade they will never sit. Yeah. And I think that's just a very resonant idea that like what makes for the meaningful great society is one where we're playing a sort of relay race with our ancestors and our descendants. We're taking the projects that they have bestowed on us, we're making them even better, and we're creating a world that future generations can thrive in. Yeah, but uh, so at the same time, I don't want to pretend that long-termism, or we shouldn't pretend that long-termism is just mundane and completely common sense. There is something that's more distinctive and a bit more controversial about it. Yeah, do you want to draw, draw out that aspect of it? For sure. I think the thing that's most distinctive is what we mean by long-term. The sheer scale of how we're thinking about things, where uh, you know people criticize current political thought for being short-termist, or companies for being short-termist. And what they mean is, oh... Companies are focused on the next quarter profits. Our political cycles are focused on the next election. And they should be thinking further out on the order of years or decades. But I think we should not be so myopic. In fact, we should take seriously the whole possible scale of the future of humanity. So one thing that we've just learned in the last hundred years of science is that there is a truly vast future in front of us. And it feels odd possibly even grandiose, to start thinking about, well, what are the things that could happen in our lifetime that could have an impact, not just, you know, over decades, but over centuries, thousands, millions, or even billions of years. But if we're taking seriously that future people matter morally, and that it really doesn't matter when harms or benefits occur, then we really should take seriously this question of whether there could be events that occur in our lifetimes that have not just long-lasting, but indefinitely persistent effects. Okay, so uh, that's, that's the reason why, you know, given that people will exist in the future, we should try to make their lives better. Uh, do, do you want to say anything about the idea that it would be good to make there be more people in future, which is kind of one subset, I suppose, of the activities that people engage in to try to make the future better? Uh, yeah, so there you know, are two ways you can positively influence the long-term future. You can increase the duration of civilization, so you can make sure we don't go extinct or civilization doesn't irrecoverably collapse but you can also and you can improve the quality of the future so for however long civilization will last you can make sure that the people who do live in that future have better lives if you're looking at the first of those so reducing the risk of extinction or catastrophe then you get into this question of okay you're not actually benefiting future people you're just enabling future generations to exist and even if you think they've got very good lives you might think well it's not really a moral loss if they don't exist. And I think there's um, you know, something intuitive about that view. But I think ultimately it's not correct. And that's for a few arguments, some of which get technical. I talk about it in the book. One way of thinking about it is just to imagine lives with intense suffering. So if you could bring into existence a life that 
last 10 years and just has the most tortured, extreme suffering, and you have the option of not bringing into existence that life, seems pretty clear that you ought to just say no. Like, yeah. <laughs> a life full of suffering <laughs> just shouldn't be lived. Yeah. And in fact, that would be just a harm for the person whose life you'd bring into existence. Mm. So if we think that about lives that are negative, that have so much more, su- that have more suffering than happiness, well, why should we not think symmetrically like the same? So perhaps, it's, and this becomes more intuitive if you think about really, really good lives. Like, oh, just imagine your best day. And then imagine you could like create a life that was just like every day is just as good as that. And they just have this like wonderful flourishing life. Then it becomes more intuitive. Like actually it's just a loss if that person doesn't get to live and, ex- and experience this world. Yeah. I guess, yeah, population ethics, which is kind of the, the philosophy of what you're just talking about, is a, is a huge area in itself that we will, probably won't be able to dive into very much today. But we can, we can stick up a link to, I guess, the best summary that we, can, that we can find on that in the show notes. For sure. Yeah. And I should say it's one of the hardest and most complex and challenging areas of moral philosophy. And uh, yeah, I have a chapter on this, uh, chapter eight, I think, in the book. And it kind of is the best overview I could do, at least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so the the third plank in the in the argument is that we actually can do something to to help uh, people in the future. Yeah, do you want to explain why you think this issue is uh, tractable, as as we say? Yeah, I think um, there are two ways in which we can impact the long term future. First is we can ensure that we have a future at all by reducing risks to the extinction of human beings or to the collapse of civilization. And the second is that we can help ensure that the values and ideas that guide future society are better ones rather than worse. Okay, so we've got avoiding extinction, which is pretty intuitive that that would have have persistent impacts. And then there's trying to change what people opt to do, how they, like, what activities they're engaged in in the future, I guess by, you're saying, by shifting the values that they have, so the things that they think are valuable to do. And I suppose it's a little bit counterintuitive that we might be able to affect like what people care about thousands of years in the future. But uh, I guess as, we'll, as we'll come back to later, actually the, the case for that is almost overwhelming that that is possible. Because is it, is it only values that are other ways of shifting what people do in future? Or is there also like changing people's practices or some other way of, of shifting what people are up to in future? There are some other things I think we can do. So preserving information, preserving species, you know, digitizing things, preserving you know, internet archive backups. Yeah. <laughs> I think those have a very mild benefit just forever, because I think information can persist forever. Uh, there are also sometimes arguments about more kind of economic or technological lock-in. So QWERTY keyboards versus Dvorak keyboards is this, you know, it's this paradigm example, allegedly, yeah. of lock-in, where a certain standard was chosen and just persisted for a long time. And arguably it's way worse, but hard to ship now. Exactly. Um, for my investigation, I found approximately zero examples of plausible technological lock-in and then i think when we're looking over so the qwerty versus dvorak there's not good arguments that dvorak is really superior to qwerty the arguments that you've heard came from dvorak himself (laughs) he was a good like self-publicist and then when we're thinking okay not just a century let's say but you know millions of years into the future and then we ask why does future civilization not switch to some better standard seems pretty hard just um, because they won't be in a hurry at that point, uh, things will like at some point things will stable out. Uh, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine if you, in your own case, if you were going to be a typist for a million years, <laughs> you, <laughs> you you'd probably. really invest the time in like co- you know setting up your keyboard in the way that makes most sense. Yeah, makes sense. 
So, so far we've been talking at a pretty abstract level. It might, might help people to think about long-termism if they have kind of a more concrete idea in mind of what it, what it actually implies or what, what uh, long-termists are actually doing. Do you have a couple of uh, useful illustrative examples of that to, to hand? For sure. So one focus area is pandemic prevention, but in particular from worst-case pandemics. Uh, you might think, oh, this is a very trendy thing to be hopping on the bandwagon of, but we have been concerned about this for many, many years. I think 80,000 Hours started recommending this as a career area. Uh, in 2014, I believe. And why are we so concerned about this? Well, developments in uh, synthetic biology could enable the creation of pathogens with unprecedented destructive power, such that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, while killing tens of millions of people, wreaking trillions of dollars of damage, being an enormous tragedy, it would make that tragedy look kind of small scale. And in fact, in the limit, uh, we could create pathogens that could kill literally everyone on the planet. And if the human race goes extinct, that's a persistent effect. We're not coming back from that. Yeah. So what are we doing? Well, I think there's various possible options. Uh, so one thing we're doing is investing in technology that can be used to prevent against worst-case pandemics. So something I'm particularly excited about at the moment is far UVC. This is quite a narrow spectrum of light. You can have like high comparatively high energy light in the spectrum and it completely well the hope is that it basically sterilizes rooms that the light is shining on this is because it's a kind of physical means of sterilizing surfaces and even sterilizing air if it really works it's protective against a very wide array of pathogens it's not necessarily something that you know clever <laughs> and malintentioned um, biologists could kind of guard against. But yet, if this were implanted as a standard in all light bulbs around the world, then potentially we could just actually be protected against all pandemics ever, as well as all respiratory diseases, just as a bonus. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, this is very early stage. We're going to fund this a lot, but potentially at least extremely exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's, a, what's another example? Uh, so another example within pandemic preparedness would be early detection, where at the moment we do very little for screening for novel pathogens. But you could imagine a program that just all around the world is constantly screening wastewater, for example, to see is there anything in these samples that we just don't know about that looks like a new virus or a new bacterial infection. And then can ring the alarm bell means we could respond much, much faster to some new pandemic outbreak. Yeah. Any, any non-pandemic stuff? Uh, yeah. Uh, so there's lots. But the other big focus by far is on artificial intelligence, where I think there are good arguments that the development of artificial intelligence that's not just narrow, so we already use AI all the time when we're using Google search, let's say, but AI that is more advanced, more able to do a very wide array of tasks and able to act basically like an agent, like an actor in the world in the way that humans do. There's arguments for thinking that could be among the most important inventions ever and really pivotal for the long-run trajectory of civilization. And that's kind of for two reasons. One is that technological progress could go much, much faster. So if, you know, at the moment, why is technological progress? Like, why does it go at the pace it does? Well, there's just only so much kind of human research labor that can go onto it, and that takes time. Well, what if we automate that? <laughs> what if now it's AI is doing R&D? There's no reason in principle, and in fact, economic models produce the result that technological progress could go much, much faster. 
So in our lifetimes, perhaps actually it's the equivalent of thousands of years of technological advancement that are happening. Yeah, I suppose, so I suppose it could be thousands of years, but even if it was just decades occurring in a single year, that would still be massive. That would still be absolutely massive. And I guess we'll um, be going into this process kind of not knowing how much it's going to speed things up, which is pretty unnerving. Which is pretty unnerving, exactly. And so it could lead to enormous concentrations of power, perhaps with a single company, a single country, or the AI systems themselves. And so this is the uh, scenario kind of normally referred to as the Terminator scenario. <laughs> uh, many researchers don't like that. I think we should own it. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. <laughs> the time travel is maybe unrealistic, yeah. but other elements um, actually do map onto the worries, hmm. where the thought is you've got very rapid technological progress happening. That's being driven by the AIs themselves. The AI systems are acting as agents in the world and actors. They are not bottlenecked in terms of the peaks of the intelligence that they can reach in the way that we are, where, well, there's only so much brain you can fit inside a human skull. Whereas AIs could have more and more Shotgun computational more servers, power, yeah. yeah, computational power that they're using, better and better software, and so it might not be a very long time period at all that these AI actors move from being about human level intelligence to being much much smarter than we are, and we might find ourselves in a situation where it's really AI systems that are controlling the future rather than human beings, and that seems like a pivotal moment because we might ask, well, what do those AI systems care about? What are they aiming to do? Yeah. It could be the benevolent and they work together with humans and we all together build this like flourishing future society. It could be that they care about things that are just very alien to us and that perhaps have no moral value at all. And humanity is left entirely disempowered. Yeah. And the future just gets driven by things that just might seem kind of arbitrary to us. And that could just be this indefinite loss of value. So, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of concreteness there. I guess if, if, if you're about to stop listening, then uh, don't walk away thinking that long-termism is synonymous with preventing pandemics and, and worrying about AI, because uh, I guess the, the long-termist mentality can go in all kinds of different directions, and we'll come back to some other possible applicate or like concrete ways of cashing out the ideas later on. But let's, let's come back to the kind of abstract uh, philosophy for a little bit longer. I guess something that might not be totally obvious to people uh, until, they, until they read your book anyway is that you actually took quite a long time to come around to being bought into long-termism, at least on a kind of emotional level or you know, being, being motivated by the ideas. Yeah, what were your reservations when you, when you first heard about the idea? Yeah, and it wasn't just emotional disinclination. Um, intellectually, I wasn't bought in for quite a while. In fact, the first time I met Toby... And we, he presented to me the idea of giving what we can, uh, which we later co-founded. Yeah, Toby Ord. Toby Ord, yeah. of course. Um, I asked him, what, what are your biggest worries about this project, the ways in which you think it could be fundamentally mistaken? And he said among his biggest worries were that perhaps focusing on global health and development wasn't the right thing to do. Instead, we should focus on existential risks. That is, risks that could dramatically reduce humanity's long-term potential such as catastrophic pandemics, catastrophic AI. And I thought this was crackpot. I, just, <laughs> I thought this was totally crackpot at the time. In terms of my intellectual development, maybe over the course of three to six months, I moved to thinking it was non-crackpot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then over the course of a number of years, became intellectually bought in. When I wrote Doing Good Better, which was... So I first met Toby Ord in 2009... When I wrote Doing Good Better, I did seriously consider including, um, I have some material on global catastrophic risks in there. I considered having much more, but decided I didn't want to kind of make the book too broad, too diffuse. And then it was by 2017 that 
I really thought, look, I just want to really pivot to focusing on these issues. Why did you initially think it was Crackpot? I guess this is 2009, so it was a weirder idea at that point. Far fewer people were into it, but... Uh, yeah, so 2009, it just was a lot more Crackpot yeah. then. <laughs> um, in, two, in two senses. Uh, one was just very few people went into this idea. Uh, second is that the particular activities that were you know, being discussed were much more speculative now. So... One thing that's striking is actually the correlation between the biggest risks that were identified at that point, almost from the armchair, yeah. <laughs> uh, and what we now regard as uh, the biggest risks, where AI was regarded as a very major risk, pathogens were regarded as a very major risk. The big, most notable difference is that nanotech is, was regarded as a very major risk. and It's kind of dropped off the radar. dropped off the radar. People don't really see it as, as pivotal now. Having said that, what do we do about such things? That was much, much less well-developed. I certainly could not have told you about far UVC or early detection programs in 2009. So it was much more like a bunch of people on the outskirts of academia or not in academia, kind of on blogs, really kind of speculating about such things. Yeah, writing up their pet theories. Exactly, yeah. that's right. And so why was I not intellectually convinced to begin with? I think there's two reasons. Firstly, I understood existential risks as just extinction risks, and that being the main pathway. And the focus for thinking that extinction risk is enormously important from a very long-term perspective, it does rely on some philosophical assumptions, in particular population ethics assumptions, that the loss of a future life, um, even if very good, is a moral loss, in the sense of a loss of a future life of that life never, being, never existing in the first place, not in the sense of someone dying. And then a second uh, is the future being net positive, which I guess I have just always thought, but at least, you know, it's another question mark that you could have. And then thirdly, just even if you accept that the very long-term future is of enormous importance, it's where almost all value is, is the best way to promote that value by reducing extinction risk? Well, what about speeding up economic growth, both in terms of, you know, that's also increasing more value in the future, and also just on a practical perspective, the fact that to reducing extinction risk, even if you think that's where kind of the pathway to improving future, increasing future value, doesn't mean you should work on that directly. Maybe we're just unsure enough about how to reduce extinction risk that doing much broader things like generally making the world better is the best thing to do. Yeah. Something that's a little bit funny about this is I, I've recently I've uh, gone back and been looking at some old books that discussed uh, existential risks or you know global catastrophic risks. There was in, in 2003 this the, the famous lawyer and jurist uh, Richard Posner wrote this book called uh, Catastrophe: Risk and Response, yeah. which I think just lays out this incredibly like boring common sense case that you know humanity is vulnerable to big disruptions and we're not really doing very much about that. We, we don't really dedicate any people to thinking about that or preventing that. And there's stuff that could be done. It's kind of a lot more common sense in flavor and kind of embedded within mainstream academic discussion than the existential risk stuff was in 2009. And I almost For think sure. it's a real shame that there was, a, well, I guess, I don't know, who, who knows? Maybe, maybe if we'd stuck with the kind of the common sense argument, that would have closed our mind to more, to more interesting things. But I, I wonder whether, in fact, this whole process was slowed down by not just adopting a more boring, like, economics, cost-benefit analysis way of talking about existential risks. Uh, I mean, I think that's very possible. Certainly the early discussion of this it had a feeling of kind of fringiness to it yeah. that wasn't helpful and wasn't really necessary as well. 
I should say with that book, uh, Catastrophe, Risk and Response, I mean, it's focused on catastrophes mm. um, where that could mean, you know, 10% of the population dying or 90%, which are distinct from the category of existential risks and distinct from long-termism, where Posner endorses a discount rate such that the long-term future does not have enormous moral value. Past a few centuries, it just, it loses almost all its value because you reduce the, on his model, you decrease the value of the future every year by 2% or so in terms of even welfare. And that means after a few hundred years that you just don't care. You just don't care, exactly. And that's how he gets around the conclusion that extinction risk should be a particular focus. And how big a difference does this make in practice is not hugely obvious, but at least in terms of conceptual understanding, I think it's very important. There's a very important difference between what Richard Posner was doing and what the people working on existential risk were doing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So coming back to your gradual journey towards uh, being excited about long-termism, did you find it intuitive to care about future generations to quite the degree that, I guess, I, you know, supporters like, like Toby Ord were suggesting in 2009? So I certainly found it intuitive to care about future generations. I think it was very open as a question to me, you know, the best way of doing that. In particular, I think I would have endorsed the idea that, well, maybe there are these things that have very long lasting effects, but, you know, who knows if we can really make any traction on them. Perhaps just the best thing you can do, even for the long term, is building a flourishing society, you know, increasing economic growth, um, improving say, education, improving education, that making sort of, that democracy sort of work better. Yeah. But then the biggest thing was just looking at, you know, what are the options I have available to me in terms of what do I focus my time on? Where one is, you know, building up this idea of giving what we can, of, you know, a kind of moral movement focused on helping people and using evidence and data to do that. And it just seemed like we were getting a lot of traction there. Alternatively, and I did go, like, spend these five-hour seminars at Future of Humanity Institute that were talking about, you know, the impacts of superintelligence. Seemed like, you know, I mean, actually, <laughs> one way in which I was wrong is just like mm. the impact of the book that that turned into, namely Superintelligence, okay, yeah. was maybe a hundred times more impactful than... Oh, wow. I mean, so Superintelligence has yeah. sold 200,000 copies. Okay, I can yeah. think if you'd asked me how many copies I expected it to sell, <laughs> maybe it said one or 2,000. Right. So the impact of it actually was much greater than I was thinking at the time. Mm. But I think I was, honestly, I just think I was right that the tractability of what we were working on at the time was pretty low. And doing this thing of just building a movement of people who really care about some of the problems in the world and who are trying to like think carefully about how to make progress there was just much better than being this additional person in the seminar room. I honestly think that intuition was correct. And that was true for Toby as well. Um, uh, early days of giving what we can, he'd be having these arguments with people on less long about whether it was right to focus on global health and development. And his view was like, well, we're actually doing something. <laughs> <laughs> you guys just comment on this forum. Yeah. yeah. And again, like looking back, Actually, you know, again, I will say I've been surprised by just how influential some of these ideas have been. And that's like, you know, a tremendous testament to early thinkers like Nick Bostrom and Elias Zikowski and Carl Schulman. At the same time, I think the insight that we had, which was, you know, we've actually just got to build stuff. Yeah. And even if perhaps there are some theoretical arguments that you should prioritizing in a different way, there are many, many like positive indirect effects hmm. from just doing something impressive and concrete and tangible, yeah. as well as the enormous 
benefits that we have succeeded in, do, in producing, which is you know, tens to hundreds of millions of bed nets distributed and thousands of lives saved. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the setup for how there was a decent degree of resistance to, uh, to long-termism when you first encountered it. Yeah, what was one of the, the first steps that you talk, took towards, towards embracing it on a, on a deeper level? So intellectually, the two big differences. So the first was just starting to appreciate the scale of the future. Mm. And that was really came pretty early on. So the arguments, I think, that the future in expectation, where that's a bit of technical terminology means just once you take into account both probabilities and scale into account. So, you know, life expectancy is like this, you know, if you've got a 10% chance of living 100 more years, that would increase your life expectancy by 10 years. Yeah. But in expectation, the future is very big indeed. That yes, perhaps we'll go extinct in the next few centuries. But if we don't, and we get to a kind of safe place, things could be really big indeed. Um, as I say, like hundreds of millions of years until the Earth is no longer habitable, hundreds of trillions of years till the last stars fade. So the idea that there's just this enormous amount of kind of moral value there, in fact, like if whatever you care about, essentially, whether that's, you know, joy, adventure, achievement, you know, the natural environment, it's almost all in the future. Yeah. Um, that I had like, you know, I got bought into fairly early on. And then the two things that really changed were firstly the philosophical arguments becoming just more robust over time, I think. So I think that the issue of population ethics, for example, where that's questions about, is it a moral loss if we fail to create someone in a future date who would have a happy, flourishing life? That's actually essentially irrelevant to the case for long-termism. Because I think there are things that we can do that aren't just about increasing the number of people in the future, but about how well or badly the future goes, given that the future is long. I see. So the difference between like a flourishing utopian future and one of just perpetual dictatorship. Yeah. Um, okay, so it might affect where you focus, whether you focus on there being like creating a future that has way more people in it versus not. But even if you weren't bought in on there being more people, because there will probably be tons of people, or at least an expectation there'll be lots of lots of people in the future, then you'd still care about the long-term impacts because you'd want to improve their quality of life and put yeah, leave them in a, in, in a better situation. For sure, exactly. Um, so that's one. Secondly, I think getting more clarity on, yeah, the arguments why economic growth, for example, is not, at least not directly, a way of positively influencing the very long-term future because at some point in time we will plateau. So perhaps you speed up a little bit the point at which we, you know, get as well off technologically as we ever will. But that's, you know, something that we will achieve over the course of, I mean, could be not that long, but certainly thousands of years. Yeah. Um, that's not something that's affecting the really long-run trajectory of civilization. Whereas actually the things that do affect it are perhaps a much narrower set of activities, such as AI and pandemic prevention. But then the second category of things was less philosophical and more empirical, where the sorts of actions that one would recommend as a long-termist moved out of the category of, let's sit and think more about this in a philosophy seminar room or something equivalent, where there's just a real worry that's like, are we really achieving anything here? And instead are now just like very concrete. So within AI, there's this huge boom in machine learning research we are now able to like experiment with models to see, do they display deceptive behavior? Can we make them more truthful? Can we make them less likely to cause harm? 
in the case of pandemics, like we have, <laughs> we've the, learned a lot. We've learned a lot over the last few years. We have like very concrete ways of making progress. And so the actions that we now recommend have really moved out of something where it feels very brittle. It feels very um, like we could easily be fooling ourselves and more to just look. It's just this list of things that we can really make get traction on. Yeah. It's very interesting that you're a philosopher by, by training. And in 2009, you were already, I guess, were you doing your philosophy PhD then? Or? Uh, I was doing my master's degree, so master's, just before my PhD. Just before that. Yeah. But even, even given that, if you're in a philosophy seminar room where people are talking about really big, impo- like important, potentially like crucially decisive ideas that might affect what you should do, if there's no actual like way of cashing it out, if there's no project that seems tractable and viable to, to build, then kind of no matter how important the idea is on paper, you have this intuition that you want to like hit the eject button basically and say, I'm not going to like let this blackboard philosophy uh, determine my, my direction. And you almost like insist that until there's something practical, I'm just going to refuse to engage with this on, on this level. For sure. And this is actually something that I think is great about the intersection between academic research and the effective altruism movement is that it's extremely easy for academic research or similar to just get lost in the weeds of some intellectual project that actually just doesn't cash out, um, even if it feels like it's very practical. Mm. So philosophy engages a lot with the question of the value of equality and inequality, disvalue of inequality. And there's various different models of like, how should you take into account the value of um, equality? At the time, this really felt like a very important thing. It actually really does influence economists to some extent. But actually... I think it basically doesn't make any difference because (laughs) look at the world, the scale of inequality is just so vast that whether you're simply adding up benefits to people or whether you give extra value also to people being, you know, less well off than others, that is you give weight to inequality, the disvalue of inequality itself just doesn't make any difference for practical purposes. Yeah. And so that's a case where it's like, oh, something that seems like it's going to be practical, but practically relevant does not become practically relevant. Yeah, I guess economists would say it's practically relevant, but not on the margin. So, so, yes, so it's like, exactly. It's like with the case where we are with spending to reduce global catastrophic risks. If you're having a debate about whether you should increase spending by 30-fold or 70-fold, I mean, in, on some level, that is a practical question. On another level, you could just say, well, let's just start by doubling it. Exactly. <laughs> and then we could discuss this more. And this is one of the things that I think most often gets misunderstood about effective altruism mm. is that we're always thinking on the margin. And so, you know, if I'm going around championing a very long-term perspective, so greater investment in pandemic preparedness and AI safety and AI governance, that's saying relative to where we are now, we should be spending and focusing a lot more on this. Whereas people might respond and say, oh, are you saying that all of our resources should be spent on this? I'm like, no. Like, I really don't know the point at which the arguments for long-termism just stop working because we've just used up all of the best targeted opportunities for making the long-term go well and such that there's just no difference. Yeah, exactly. There's just no difference between a long-termist argument and just an argument that's about building a flourishing society in general. Yeah. Maybe you hit that 50%, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's even 1%. I don't really know. But given what the world currently prioritizes, should we care more about our grandkids and their grandkids and, you know, how the course of the next few millennia and millions of years go? 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the claim. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Coming back to your like gradual persuasion, what, what sort of time scale are we talking about here? I, I mean, so in 2009, you first kind of learned about it and it sounds like you gradually, so you, gradually you came to think it's not crazy. But in 2014, you wrote Doing Good Better and that somewhat soft pedals long-termism when, you, when you're introducing effective altruism. So it seems like it was quite a long time before you got fully bought in. Yeah. I mean, I think I should say for 2014, like Doing Good Better in some sense, the most accurate book that was fully representing kind of my and colleagues like EA Thought would have been broader than the particular focus. And especially for my first book, there was a lot of um, kind of equivalent of trade. <laughs> it's like an agreement with the publishers about like what uh, gets included. I, see. I also wanted to include a lot more than animal issues, but the publishers really didn't. They really didn't like that, um, actually. So their thought was... Um, you just don't want to make it too weird. I see. Okay. Um, so, there was they, also, so they want to sell books and yeah, they want so, yeah, to yeah, keep exactly. it fairly mainstream. Exactly. There was, um, and there was also just a thought of like, start talking about, yeah, the, you know, issues about existential risk at more length. Like, mm. again, it's not that clear, like what you tell people to do. Having said that, yeah, 2014, I think I would have just presented all of global health and development, animal welfare and existential risk work kind of on the, like a even kind of playing field as it were yeah and then it was after then the kind of wave of uh publication of that and you know increase in the uptake of the effective altruism kind of movement i felt like okay that project has now been kind of wrapped up and so now i want to focus kind of in a much more deliberate way on these kind of long-termist issues i remember 2017 in particular because that felt like i was at a bit of a a moment where i'd wrapped up some projects it was also a moment of um, particular, particularly energetic discussion about AI timelines, right. where the AlphaGo had, um, that appeared in 2016. Then some people started making arguments in 2017 for very short AI timelines. As in um, we might have human level AI within years or something? Yeah. So there were a couple of people who were arguing for five-year timelines, okay. as in like 50-50 chance of hmm. uh, human level intelligence within five years. Yeah. Um, you might, know, you might notice that was exactly <laughs> five years ago. Um, yeah. So uh, one pathway into the book was that these were people I respected a lot. So I thought like, oh, I'm going to like dive into this a bit more. Started diving into it. I was not particularly convinced of the kind of ultra short AI timelines arguments. That led to like pulling on a bunch of other threads. And I thought, okay, I just actually really want to figure this all out for myself. <laughs> and then uh, I guess five years later, <laughs> um, I've now got this book. What we like, in the future. What we've got, what we in the future. Yeah. yeah. So that's some of the areas where you've kind of come around to the, to the long-termist perspective. What still kind of feel like the strongest arguments against, you know, the, the long-term being uh, a key moral priority that, that, that still seem kind of plausible to you? Uh, I think there are a few. So one, maybe the most powerful, but not that action relevant, is just maybe nothing matters. Hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe right. the world is just entirely meaningless and... For mm. any time you say we should do something, that's just false. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> it's a misunderstanding, yeah. Yeah, because um, nihilism is true. Yeah, okay, well, let's bracket that. We can bracket that. <laughs> um, uh, the one that I think is really weighs on me most is just uh, the following argument, which is look over kind of our intellectual progress in the last two, like few hundred years. There's a series of just enormous kind of intellectual changes, Nick Boston would call crucial considerations, that greatly change how we should think about our top priorities. 
So probability theory was only developed in the 17th century by Blaise Pascal, um, even in its very early stages. The idea that the future might be enormously large and the universe might be enormously big, but yet unpopulated, Mm. that was just only the early 20th century. The idea of AI actually has a pretty decent history um, going, you know, the first computer science pioneers, Alan Turing and I.J. Good basically just understood the risks that AI posed. Mm. Um, Seemingly almost immediately. Immediately. It was incredible. I mean, they were very smart people, I think. that's true, yeah. I mean, they don't have the arguments like really well worked out, and I think a lot of intellectual contribution comes from, you know, really going deep. But you look at the quotes from Turing and I.J. Good in the 50s and early 60s, and it does seem like they're getting some of the key issues. The idea that, uh, yeah, artificial beings could be much smarter than us and that there's a question of kind of what goals do we give them also the idea that they're immortal because any ai system can just replicate itself indefinitely yeah um and the and the positive feedback loop right really jumped out of them that they're like oh you make these smart machines then they can improve themselves better than we could and so it could like take off exactly that was yeah ij good stated that just very cleanly um Pandemics as well. So the first ever piece of um, dystopian science fiction was by Mary Shelley called The Last Man. And that was in the 19th century. And that was about a pandemic that killed everyone in the world. Um, So actually, there is a good track record of some people being strikingly prophetic. Having said that, it was still only in the 80s that population ethics really became a field. Nick Boston's astronomical waste argument was in the 2000s. I honestly still feel like we're learning a lot in terms of you know, nanotech was still like one of the top causes um, in 2010. Yeah. And then I honestly feel like we're learning a lot in terms of what the right ways, even if the priorities aren't changing, like BioRisk or AI, we're learning a lot about, you know, how best to tackle them. So I think we're still learning a lot. In 100 years time, might there be very, you know, major crucial considerations such that we would look back at us today and think, oh, they were really getting some major things wrong in the same way as that we would look back at people in the 19th century saying like, oh, wow, they really misunderstood. So actually, I have an example. Yeah. The early utilitarians, John Stuart Mill and colleagues, they had this brief long-termist phase. Really? Yep. John Stuart Mill has this wonderful quote, speaking to Parliament, you might ask, why should we care about posterity? After all, what has posterity ever done for us? <laughs> and then has this beautiful discussion of actually posterity has done lots of things because they, for us mm-hmm. because we build projects. Like life only has meaning because mm-hmm. we are doing things for the benefit of posterity. I see. Okay, so, um, so the thing that they're doing for us is holding all the value exactly, that, that, yeah. that we'll create. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but interestingly, the focus there is keeping coal in the ground because the thought huh. at the time is that the reason Britain and... Uh, Britain in particular at the time, is so rich is because it's you know, able to burn all this coal. And they have this extraordinarily, extraordinarily low estimate of how much coal reserves there are. Okay. <laughs> um, and so they think, wow, well, we need to keep coal in the ground so that future generations have... Um, we'll have some energy. Have some energy, yeah. So they've got like incredibly bad understanding of economics, yeah. incredibly bad understanding of coal reserves. And so it's a pretty good thing that they were not <laughs> spending all of their time um, keeping coal in the ground for those reasons, at least. Um, oh, it's, it's, that's, it's even better than you're saying because yeah. it seems like it would have been actively detrimental perhaps to us if they'd done the thing that they think would be good because they just would have slowed down the Industrial Revolution and everything would be, have been set back maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and especially you might worry about climate change, but one thing to say is like 
the amount of fossil fuels you're burning in the end of the 19th century is just basically tiny yeah. compared to the amount we're burning now. I think it's a very strong argument that the economic benefits are outweighing the climate change effect at that point in time. Sure. So yeah, in fact, it would have been, I think you're right, I think it would have been actively harmful. Now, might the people in 100 years' time look at us and be like, <laughs> oh, whoa, they thought the AI um, yeah. was the thing to focus on, pandemics, like... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the idea that we're like sufficiently confused that our actions are doing harm, again, possibly with AI as well, where it's like focus on the power of AI and therefore, you know, perhaps that speeds up development of it, the mm. space dynamics. Yeah, so the thought here is just there's a very different perspective that one could take on how we should be taking action. And I call that robust effective altruism. I see. So we've got long-termist effective altruism, which is, you know, focus on the long-term future as a key moral priority of our time. Robust effective altruism is a little bit different, though it might be very overlapping, where instead you're trying to do things that just, even if on a naive benefit-cost calculus, do not look like the optimal thing. They look pretty good on a wide variety of perspectives. Mm. Um, yeah, you, you, and, uh, you have a kind of clean energy as an example of this, right? Yeah, so clean energy I just think of as like weirdly robustly good. <laughs> yeah. Where it makes sense, like most things, it's just, are oh, there arguments on either side? And like, okay, I think it is good, but like maybe it could be bad. Whereas clean tech, in the book I describe it as a win, 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 win. But I actually think I missed out a win. Okay. <laughs> I think it's like six wins. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about this for too long, so maybe okay. just list them quickly. Yeah. So very briefly, okay, very near term, particulates from fossil fuels kill about three and a half million people a year. Yeah. It's just really bad. And this is like this enormous non-internalized externality. And uh, there's a strong case for just getting off fossil fuels as quickly as possible, just for those reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think economists think that it would pay for itself in, or like, you know, speeding up the transition away from fossil fuels a lot would pay for itself just through the health gains. At least yeah. in rich countries, it would be well worth it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, even in the EU, we lose about a year of life expectancy just from the particulates from fossil fuels. Okay. So that's one. A second, of course, is climate change, hmm. uh, which will be very familiar. A third is that um, clean technology, you know, investment in innovation, it speeds up technological progress. I think it's a good thing for many reasons, but including to avoid the chance of uh, very long-term stagnation, which we might talk about later in this podcast. A fourth is it reduces energy poverty in poor countries. So it's also making poor countries richer there. Then we get to some somewhat more esoteric reasons. But a fifth is just that it helps keep coal in the ground and we uh, might yeah. need it for future generations. So that's John Stuart, bringing, bringing Mill, back, yeah. John Stuart Mill coming back again. Um, but in particular, I mean, we've got a lot of fossil fuels remaining. So if you imagine there was some catastrophe, humanity gets sent back to agricultural level technology mm. and we have to rebuild again. Well, they couldn't rely on easily accessible oil because we've used up almost all of it. But they would have about, you know, at current levels of consumption, about 300 years worth of coal. If, however, there were a catastrophe and we had to rebuild to current levels we would use up all of those fossil fuels again so it's kind of like we have one life remaining okay um, <laughs> like in like in super mario i guess like in yeah. super mario exactly and so if we were to have a second catastrophe then we would have to rebuild civilization without relying on hmm. fossil fuels which i think again we probably could do probably yeah I, we're very in like people in general are very innovative they're very strong incentives for economic growth but i think it'd be harder that's the that's the one thing that most gives me pause when i'm thinking about recovery after collapse. And so this is another reason. Again, I should be clear, I'm not talking at all about the magnitudes of any of these. I'm just talking about the sign. Yeah. And then, and then what do you have on the other side? Oh, okay. Did you and the, sixth the, one? No, yeah. the sixth one is then um, if you think about distribution of values in the world. So if you think about 
what are the countries that are authoritarian or even leading, leading dictatorial, where some really kind of toxic ideologies can persist. Pretty strong correlation between those, those cultures or countries and countries where leadership can take power and literally fuel themselves, yeah. like pay for themselves indefinitely by extracting natural resources and selling them. And they don't have to be um, responsive to the public. So it's familiar in economics, this idea of a resource curse, that yeah. at least in Africa, actually having a lot of natural resources, namely fossil fuels, seems to be a bad thing because it gave an incentive for dictators. Uh, similarly, the fact that Russia is able to persist as this oligopoly is because one economist describes it as um, a gas station with a military. Yeah. Whereas if you've got, a, you know, if you're relying economically on the innovation that's being produced by your people, it's like much harder to be kind of authoritarian. Yeah. Well, I suppose you have a strong incentive to educate people and make sure that the population broadly is flourishing and the power is widely, exactly, widely yeah. distributed, which yeah. tends to lead to a different set, and yeah. hopefully a more more humane set of values. Uh, okay. And then I guess the other thing with clean energy is that then, then you try to be, well, what's on the other side? Like, yeah. what are the risks here? How could it go wrong? And it's just kind of uh, tumbleweed, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the strongest case would be if you thought that economic development in general is bad, mm -hmm. um, which I don't. Like, I think... Yeah. Um, and bad, like, even if it's driven by solar panels. Yeah. I know, exactly. I'm like, yeah, I'm really like, oh, like, yeah, solar panels, like enhanced geothermal. I mean, I'm just really struggling to see that as like a really big risk to the world. Yeah. But there is, there is one line of argument you could make, um, which I think is, doesn't ultimately cash out, which is, look, we're going really fast technologically. Our kind of societal wisdom is not going fast enough. If economic growth at the, you know, technological growth was just in general going slower, there would be more time for kind of moral reasoning and political development to kind of catch up. And so actually, we just want a slower growth rate over the coming centuries. And I think that's not true. But um, it's, that's, it's the one, that's the one argument you could make against it. Yeah. Yeah, do you, do you want to elaborate a bit more on, I guess, uh, robust effective altruism versus uh, what's the alternative? What, what do we call that? Just, uh, just I was contrasting it with long-termist okay. uh, effective altruism. Yeah. Although really the two things are overlapping because, you know, you might want to do robustly good actions because you think long-termism is true. You're just not sure like what are the best ways of promoting long-term value. But you also might want to do robustly good actions because maybe long-termism isn't true. So I do think they're kind of the distinct ways of viewing the world and what we should prioritize. Yeah. Okay, so that was an example of robust effective altruism. Yeah, do, do you have any others that stand out? Yeah, uh, many. So another one, I think, is just reducing the risk of war. And I think war is really bad. It's something that would have been accessible for basically all of history. If you look at the Moists, for example, who are kind of like very early effective altruists, um, at least there's some notable similarities where uh, they had a broadly consequentialist um, moral philosophy. They were kind of influential philosophy in the period of the 100 schools of thought, about 500 BC in ancient China. So, you know, kind of somewhat intellectually similar. And their view was like, oh, yeah, war is the worst thing. <laughs> we need to stop war. And so they became very good at defensive warfare. Yeah, they got um, really good at building what, uh, like walls around cities so that attackers wouldn't even think it was worth their while to have a go. Yeah, exactly. And they actually formed, it's amazing, a group of altruists and they would like, you know, wear kind of rags because they didn't want to spend money on luxuries. Yeah. And they formed a paramilitary group <laughs> in order to defend <laughs> cities that were under siege. New org idea. Yeah, like, yeah I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the, the, when we're talking about concrete implementations. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's very accessible. 
And, you know, later when we talk more about some of the risks we face, like uh, risk from worst case pandemics via, you know, artificial pathogens, risks from people just being the least dumb when it comes to developing AI and like going too fast, being in an arms race dynamic, risks from, you know, some single country trying to take over the world and implement a dictatorship, all of the risks from unknowns, unknowns as well. All of these things look much worse, in my view, in either a hot or cold war scenario. Okay, yeah. And I think there's just a plausible explanation for that, which is that people start doing really dumb things. Or um, these risk, reckless things. Yeah, yeah, reckless things, exactly, mm. in like a war scenario. It's also a very strongly negative sum. So if you think people's goals in general are broadly good, then the fact that we're in this world of trade, where like in general countries are cooperating, like at least at the moment... That's like way better than this like aggressive competitive scenario. So I think like even for things I haven't really figured out, like reducing the risk of war looks pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice example of that that has come up on the show once or twice before is um, the Manhattan Project when mm-hmm. obviously the US was fighting the Nazis, yeah. fighting, fighting the Japanese. Some of the physicists thought there was like, they thought about this a bunch. They did some modeling and they were like, we're pretty sure that a nuclear blast won't ignite the atmosphere, but we're like not totally sure about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and they went ahead and definitely, definitely tested out the nuclear bomb anyway. If they hadn't been at war, they might have uh, pressed pause on that and thought a little bit longer about whether they wanted to take a one in a hundred chance of killing everyone. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, perhaps even from their perspective, they were right to do so. Because totally, yeah. the risk was, you know, attempted world domination by the Nazis. Yeah. Um, so exactly, that's not the sort of thing that I... That one does in peacetime. Exactly. It's just like far more, far more reckless. And then a final set of things is just trying to generally build a community and movement of people who are morally motivated, care a lot about the truth, just want to have true beliefs, are like cooperative and willing to like respond to new evidence as it comes in. And so I think the growth of kind of effective altruism as an idea in a community, as long as we can preserve those virtues, also looks kind of good and robustly good across a wide array of scenarios. Because, you know, 20 years time, Rob Wiblin Jr. comes up with some amazing kind of insight. Much better than the trash that we could think of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Some like incredible, yeah. We've really got to just update our views. Well, if you've built a community that is capable of updating in that way, um, changing its mind in light of good arguments or evidence, then great. We've built these resources. We've given those resources to people who are morally motivated and smarter and better informed than us. Mm. And then they take action on the right things. Yeah. Okay, so you've written a book about effective altruism, uh, as well as now a book about long-termism. What is the relationship between these ideas, if anything? Does does effective altruism imply long-termism or long-termism imply effective altruism? Or are these just kind of, you know, logically independent ideas that you can accept and and reject as you like? For long-termism, I think they're separate ideas. So obviously many people in effective altruism are not long-termists. They focus on near-term issues. There are a number of people who we could consider long-termists who are not part of the effective altruism community. So the Long Now Foundation is like that. So, so the Long Now Foundation, I guess, they don't really associate themselves, they don't identify, I guess, as part of effective altruism. But like, wouldn't we say maybe that the reason why they're doing it is actually like effective altruist-flavored reasons, like whether they, whether they see it that way or not? Well, I think whether they see it that way or not is kind of crucial. So it might be that they think the work they're doing is just the best thing they know of as a way of doing good, in which case they're effective altruists, yeah. even if they don't know it. 
It might be just that they thought this stuff was cool and they want to promote discussion of the long term, but they, they're not particularly making a claim that this is the best way of doing good. Okay, I see. Okay, so someone who was interested in improving the long term but wasn't claiming that this was the best way for them to do good or among the very best ways for them to do good would count as someone who's embracing long-termism as a practice without being an EA. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so that has been an introduction to, I guess, the arguments, the reasons why people might take long-termism seriously as a as a theory, as well as some of the some of the potential weaknesses with it. Uh, and we'll talk more about the weaknesses uh, later on. Let's now push on to maybe fleshing out a little bit more these two approaches that you've mentioned, or these two different kind of schools of thought within long-termism about how one can potentially have impacts that are very that are very persistent. I suppose the setup here is that it's kind of kind of intruded the idea that you could have uh, impacts over millions of years. And many people do have the intuition that kind of anything we do now, well, sure, it might help someone today, but in the long term, it's all just going to wash out. And so you need some special theory for why any actions you're going to take now won't just wash out as society returns to some long run trend that it would have gotten to regardless of what you did. And of course, the first approach that stands out is preventing extinction because it's, it's just like such a clear case that if all of the humans disappeared, then uh, we're not going to be able to return to some, to some previous trend. Uh, that is kind of the, well, I mean, maybe there'll be some future species on Earth, kind of the planet of the ape style, but uh, most plausibly, uh, there just isn't going to be a species like, like humans on Earth again. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the, the second one, which is perhaps a more emerging, like more modern school of thought within long-termism is this idea of kind of changing the trajectory that we're on without changing whether, we're, whether we go extinct or not. So humans are going to be around, but maybe we could improve what people will decide to do in the future. So this is more about improving the quality of society or the quality of lives that, that will exist in, in future. Uh, that's right. Um, with one caveat that I think we should focus on this, whether or not humans are around, um, you know, possibly, I think most people, when they think about, you know, the very long term future, suspect that human beings in the sense of like flesh and blood human beings um, might be only a very small proportion of future beings. And instead, it's kind of digital beings are like whether they are our successors in some way. And, you know, we feel good about uh, those beings or where there's been some hostile event where AI digital beings have uh, kind of aggressively taken over control of the future. I see. So I guess we could talk about humanity and its descendants or... Humanity uh, and its descendants or just civilization. Okay, civilization. There's a humanity broadly construed, which yeah. <laughs> includes uploaded people and yeah, any other descendants that we might produce. Okay, so just on the first one, the extinction risk. We've had a lot of episodes on that over the years, uh, including a couple that stand out like um, yeah, episode 72 with Toby Ord, where he talks about his book, The Precipice, which is pretty focused on these extinction scenarios. And there's also uh, more recently episode 112 with Carl Schulman, where he kind of makes the, the common sense case for focusing on the on, on the risk of, it, of, it, of extinction. So we're not going to go into that in, in quite as much detail because it's, uh, it's, it's covered elsewhere. But one thing I wanted to bring up with you about this is recently, or at least like this, this year, I've seen a lot of people make the case that in their mind, the risk of humans going extinct during their lifetime, or at least like over the next 100 years, is so high, you know, 10% or more, that one doesn't really need to give a damn about future generations in order to be really worried about that. If you think there's a 10% chance or a 20% or 30% chance that civilization is going to be wiped out during your lifetime, then obviously that is a massive emergency. And it's an emergency for you and people you know, not just because of some like philosophy argument about future generations. And those folks are maybe even worried that focusing on the long-termist philosophy is kind of a distraction. Maybe it, like, it undersells the case for worrying about extinction risk if, if the risk is so large, because it gets people thinking about whether they care about future generations, whereas really what, what they should be thinking is, I'm at great risk, and everything that I care about is at great risk right now. Yeah. Uh, and so in, you, you might actually get more buy-in if you just like, point to the empirical case for why we're on really shaky ground right now. What do you make of this idea? Uh, yeah, there's lots to say on that. 
one important thing to distinguish is between is something a good thing to do and is it the best thing to do, where the core idea of effective altruism is we want to focus on the very best thing. And I entirely buy that even if you're just concerned about what happens over the next century, reducing the risks of extinction and of other sorts of catastrophe, reducing the risk of you know, misaligned AI takeover are just extremely good things to do. <laughs> and even concerned about the next century, society should be investing a lot more in making sure they don't happen. Uh, effective altruism is about doing the best we can. And certainly on its face, it would seem extremely suspicious and surprising if the best thing we could do for the very, very long term is also the very best thing we can do for the very short term. And then secondly, I guess I think that at least given my own estimates of human extinction and uh, risks from misaligned artificial intelligence and other sorts of risks, I don't think that they would be you know, sufficiently justified as saying that the very best thing, if we're just looking at the next century, let's say, even though I would if they were thinking on like much longer timescales, over what timescales do you need in order to start to really shift your priorities? Like maybe whether you're looking like a million years out or 10 billion years out doesn't make a difference. I'm pretty on board with that. Yeah. But I think if we're really ruthlessly focused on, you know, doing the best we can, then the fact that like, okay, almost all value is in the future should, you know, one would expect it to really make a difference. I also just think in practice it does really make a difference. And so a big underlying thing is just like, what do we see as the size of extinction risk, um, say, within our lifetimes, where people you reference think that, you know, that's by far the most likely way they're going to die is by at the hands of a misaligned artificial intelligence. I think that's a real risk that we should take really seriously, but I think I'm more likely to die of cancer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but by a decent margin? Uh, yeah, by, I mean, I think I've got about a 20% chance of dying of cancer. Okay. Yeah. Um, whereas, at least in the book, I put it at, something like a 3% chance of uh, misaligned AI takeover and maybe conditional on misaligned takeover, I think like 50-50 chance that that involves like literally killing human beings rather than just disempowering them. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, and the, the other argument you might make is, well, if long-termism is true as a philosophical proposition, then it's important for people to know that, uh, even if it's not relevant to this specific decision because it's going to, might have all sorts of other implications. Uh, we can't just ignore it. For sure. So this, again, relates to the question of, oh, maybe we're like, you know, badly mistaken about certain things. You know, I think there's an important role for people to go out and say, catastrophic risk from pandemics is way higher than probably you think. Or the risk from AI is way higher than you think. And other people have gone and done that. And I think that's just really excellent. But I think it's also important to just try and convey fundamentally what's going on mm. <laughs> um, so that perhaps we get information that bio risk is much higher than we thought, or AI's you know, risk is higher or lower than we thought, or there's some new cause area that's even more important, or perhaps we should do very different things. Perhaps the, you know, the actions you take if you're concerned about very worst case pandemics, the sort of thing that could really kill us all. Perhaps there's a very different set of actions than just pandemics that could kill 90% of people. I think just in general, people really understanding what the goals are, um, what we're aiming towards, that's just going to produce a better outcome rather than kind of telling people like, oh, adopt this particular policy, but they don't really understand mm. what particular path of action, but they don't understand uh, the ultimate goals. Because then if the environment changes or our information changes, people are doing, you know, people are doing the wrong things. Okay, so let's, let's move on from extinction and talk about the second approach, which is trying to make sure that humanity does something really good, uh, conditional on its surviving. 
Now, yeah, as I said, you, you might think that if humanity survives for a really long time, then we're going to just converge on the same values and the same activities no matter what, because we'll just like think about it a lot. And yeah, no matter your like intellectual starting point, ultimately the right arguments are going to win out. What do you think of, of that idea? I mean, I think it's something we should be open to at least. But one way in which I differ from certain other people who work on long-termism is that I put a lot less weight on that. I'm in that sense, a lot less optimistic where I think it might be very hard for society to figure out what the correct thing to do is. It might require a very kind of long or at least reasonably long period of like no kind of catastrophes happening, no like race dynamics of people fighting over like control of the future, very kind of cooperative approach. And in particular, people who just really care about getting the right moral views. And once they're in positions of power, are then thinking, okay, how do we figure out what's correct? Understanding that probably I'm like very badly wrong, rather than getting into a position of power and saying, okay, great, right. <laughs> now I can implement like, you know, the my moral views, about, the stuff yeah. that I care about, which is, you know. It's not so, the historical norm. Exactly. Yeah. Like when, you know, how many, you know, people have gotten to a position of power and then immediately hired like, lots of advisors, including like moral philosophers and like other yeah. people to try and change their ideology. Um, my guess is it's zero. Yeah. <laughs> um, I certainly don't know of an example, whereas I know of lots of examples of people getting power and then immediately wanting to just lock in their ideology. Yeah, I guess, yeah, in, in building this case that the future or like, you know, what people decide to do in future is probably quite contingent on actions or could be contingent on actions that we take now. I guess that the main argument that you bring is that it seems like the values that we hold today, the things that we think today are highly contingent on actions that people took in the past. And that's, yeah. that, that's maybe the best kind of evidence that can be brought to bear on this question. What are some examples of that sort of contingency that we can see in, you know, views that we hold and practices that we engage in today? Uh, so there are some that I think are pretty clear that they're kind of contingent. So attitudes uh, to diet, attitudes to animals are things that vary a lot from country to country. So most of the world's vegetarians live in India. That goes back you know, thousands of years to kind of Vedic teachings. It's an interesting question. Like imagine if the Industrial Revolution had happened in India rather than in Britain. Would we be on this podcast talking about like, whoa, imagine a possible world in which like <laughs> animals were just, you know, incarcerated and raised in the billions for, to provide food for people. And, you know, you were saying, wow, no, that's just way too crazy. Like that's yeah. just not possible. Um, yeah, I don't know. It seems like a pretty contingent event that that's, uh, that's the way our kind of moral beliefs developed. Yeah, I mean, so that's an interesting case where I guess we don't know the identities of the people, potentially like many different people who contributed to the subcontinent, yeah, India and uh, other nearby areas, kind of taking this philosophical path where they were much more concerned about the well-being of animals than was the case in Europe or indeed like most other places. Uh, but we kind of, we know that there must have been some people who made a difference because evidently it didn't happen everywhere. It's not something that everyone converges on. Yeah. So it seems like almost necessarily there has to have to have been decisions that were made by some people there, not elsewhere, that caused this, this path to be taken. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we look at other things too, so... I mean, I think the lies of monotheistic religions, um, I mean, certainly the lies of the Abrahamic religions seems pretty contingent. There's not really a strong argument I think one can give about why monotheism should have become so popular rather than polytheism. 
Yeah. Um, I suppose people do sometimes make arguments about how monotheism is either better for cooperation or more persuasive and appealing to people somehow. But the effect can't be that strong because it hasn't taken over everywhere. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I guess like you think of Japan, China, yeah, the Indian subcontinent, the Americas. I don't think any of them adopted um, monotheism, uh, at least not until like very recently when Europeans basically forced them to. For sure, yeah. And one of the interesting things that I think I hadn't fully appreciated before I started to get grips with the historical literature more, is that things you might think of as convergence are much more like a single culture getting very powerful and then that culture getting exported across the world. So another one is uh, monogamy versus polygamy, where monogamous societies are the exception rather than the norm across, across history. But the kind of, you know, European Western cultures promoted monogamy. And it seems like there's just a lot of either kind of direct exporting of that via um, colonialism. Um, And also in some cases, kind of just imitation as well, where, you know, countries see, you know, very kind of economically successful and militarily successful cultures and kind of just start trying to mimic that, (laughs) including in all sorts of ways that maybe aren't very important. I mean, there are some arguments about why monogamous cultures are um, more economically successful, but that's certainly not obvious, (laughs) Um, certainly to the people adopting them. Uh, the example that I th- focus on most in the book is uh, the abolition of slavery. And I go deepest into this because it's the example I know of. I mean, firstly, it's just the most important moral change that I know of. Mm. I mean, perhaps there's, perhaps there's more, certainly among the most important moral changes in all history. And secondly, I think the case for it being in some important way contingent, that is, it could have gone either way such that we could have current levels of technology and very widespread slavery, is much stronger than one might think. So we certainly, I think, shouldn't be very confident that current levels of technological development would lead to a society that had banned slavery. Maybe one thinks it's 50-50. Maybe actually you think it's more likely or not that we didn't. And, you know, we talked about this more in the last podcast. I go deep into it in the book. One thing I should say is just I'm not saying, I'm not like some philosopher you know, imperialistically going into history and then making all sorts of pontifications. This is kind of this the default was, view among people who've studied it? Yeah, I don't have a great, you know, I couldn't say definitively kind of what's the median view among academic historians. But certainly the idea that the abolition of slavery was in economically determined, that is very, very out of fashion among historians now. And so the general view is that it uh, was a cultural change primarily. And then there's a question of, okay, well, why did that cultural change happen? Was it actually just like really quite a contingent particular thing? There's, you know, some real evidence for this. So the fact, you know, you really don't see abolitionist campaigns occurring outside of, in fact, a campaign you don't see occurring outside of Britain. Abolitionist sentiment you don't really see outside of Britain and France. And sorry, including um, United States as well. Uh, whereas you look at like the Netherlands, which in some sense is the first modern economy, you know, they had these petition campaigns that got like almost no signatures. There was like almost no abolitionist sentiment, almost no movement there. Huh. Um, industrial revolution could easily have happened in the Netherlands, could have resulted in like, you know, very different kind of model landscape. So that's kind of one view, which is like, no, it's really quite particular. There's another view that there's some broader trend towards liberalism, democracy, a kind of ideology in favor of markets, and abolition was kind of part of that. Hmm. And you know, like, even if it's not like necessarily entailed, it's like very adjacent conceptually, and exactly. so it was so likely that it would take off at some point. Exactly. And so then there's kind of 
So there's two questions. One is just like, where on the spectrum should that be? And then secondly, is a question of, did we need this movement towards kind of liberalism, egalitarianism, in order to get to current levels of technology? And my honest guess there is also no. My guess is that it's helpful, but there are many things that are helpful. And so, you know, if the kind of Western, like, you know, Protestant culture that then led to kind of liberal culture had just never, never happened, Mm. um, you know, I think China and other countries would have gotten to current levels of technological development. Maybe it would have taken a bit longer, probably not radically longer. And their culture might just be very different in some important ways. Okay, so we've got all of these examples where it seems like what we believe today, you know, what kind of culture is dominant globally, seems super contingent on events in the past that, that easily could have gone gone some other way. The fact that that is the case and that there doesn't seem to be overwhelming pressure to converge on doing the right thing, yeah, it's quite disturbing on some level, I, I feel, because it implies... For, well, firstly, that we should be super suspicious of the stuff that we think now, because, sure. well, you know, you know if someone had fallen off a horse at the right time in like a different century, then maybe we'll just have completely different views. It makes everything seem very arbitrary. Because it also makes it seem alarming, the possibility that we could kind of lock in ideas now, because the ideas we have now are, in that case, kind of arbitrary, different than what people what thought in the past. If people in the past had been able to lock us into their ideas, we would think that that was awful. Yeah. Uh, it makes the path to the future feel a little bit more like a shit show if, if, if you buy this idea? Yeah, I mean, an analogy I often think of is just imagine we're doing all the same things as we're trying to do now, like facing the same risks, but we're in second century Rome. Hmm. 10% of the population own slaves. You know, the elites, they attend the Colosseum to watch people get disemboweled or to, you know, fight each other to the death. And they just love it yeah. intensively. Extremely patriarchal culture. Women just... The idea of like female rights would be just like yeah, ludicrous. Basically completely out of the picture politically. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then now imagine like some incredibly powerful technologies uh, being developed. I would be really worried that like <laughs> Nero or Caligula would develop AGI. Yeah. I would really worry that even if AI is navigated safely in the sense that um, it's the AI does not destroy us all but it, and it's in human control, I would still be worried about like what happens to that future where the case of slavery is a case in point. Um, Again, at some point in the future, you know, digital beings will have, well, probably, it's hard to know, but like probably will have sentience and will be kind of beings of moral status. At the moment, we computer models, like AI models, they are just property. (laughs) So in some sense, the default trajectory is towards like them continuing to be property indefinitely into the future. If you then also have an ideology that where slavery is fine, well, you could imagine a future where the vast, vast majority of beings are slaves and not necessarily happy ones. Like Romans didn't have like cosmopolitanism as an idea, impartiality, moral impartiality as an ideal. That would be pretty scary. And you know, one can debate, like, how scary is that compared to how scary is um, takeover by AI agents? But I think both are pretty scary. Yeah. And then, okay, how much better are we than the Romans? I think if you're looking at historical, <laughs> I don't know, if you have the appropriate level of humility, I think we're better, yeah. for sure. <laughs> but, like, still very, very far away from the kind of best moral views. And that means a world in which, like, you know, potentially even like well-meaning people that we would regard as like good people now, were they to lock in their unreflective values would be very bad indeed. 
And so yeah. what we or really... like yeah. very, very far short of the best world so, that would be possible, yeah. Yeah, I still think it would be, you know, I think it would be good in the sense of like, it would still be a good future, but still an enormous loss of potential. Yeah. Is there anything you can say to cheer us up? This, this sounds so great, or it sounds like, like we're in a very bad situation. I don't know. Cool. I'll, 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 I'll give yeah. the strongest arguments against my view. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's one argument I don't often hear, which is just, you know, perhaps the moral truth is just like a strong attractor, just in the same way, you know, I expect in 10,000 years... Um, They'll have great chemistry. ...to have really great chemistry and really great physics. Mm. Um, there's an argument you could make, well, they'll have really great ethics too. And one could argue that, like, if they, you know, if there's no such thing as the moral truth, well, things don't matter anyway. There is obviously an intermediate view where you've got kind of a subjectivist view of metaethics where there's no ultimate fact of the matter, but the thing... That, you still want things to go one way rather than the other. You still think, well, yeah, exactly. A second thought, though, is just, like... A world, a future world where we are just much more advanced technologically, in particular via AI, has just a lot of advantages compared to the world today. So one thing is just like we know everything in like all the empirical facts. So, you know, discrimination against other beings on the basis of believing them to be intellectually inferior or something is like, I see. you know, if there's a uh, kind of like that will not happen because um, unless people are like deliberately deceiving themselves in some way. Yeah, because or, we've got like the kind of ideal information there. I see. So, so some things that look like they're barbaric and were justified by barbaric philosophy might actually have been because of bad empirical beliefs, or at least, I, yeah. <laughs> or at least they would have become untenable in the long run if people had had a full understanding of the world. That's right. Yeah, and some people say that that's like most moral disagreement. I strongly disagree with that view. I think in general, it's like the moral ideals are the horse, and the empirical beliefs are like yeah. the 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 cart that's being dragged along where people come up with some empirical reasons to justify their moral views rather than the other way around. But in the future, okay, we've got people, they've figured out empirically just everything. And then if we can get something that's like broadly like a kind of egalitarian liberal world, lots of, lots of people have substantial amounts of power, well, at least some proportion of them will be morally motivated and try and figure out what's best. And in a world with like a future tech, an AI there'll be lots of gains from trade. And so, you know, perhaps there are the people who, you know, they're kind of selfish and like they don't, or maybe they have some bad ideas, but like others, are, you know, the altruists and they're like, no, I really care about what happens. Perhaps they can just like make compromises such that, you know, one group wants great monuments built in their honor and will, you know, produce all of these workers to do so. And then like another group says, okay, but can you make the workers kind of happy? And then we've got such technological abundance that it's very cheap for them to do that. I see. So perhaps a lot of these trades are like very easy. Like you can get enormous gains from trade potentially. Yeah. Because you can figure out all possible trades that could happen and then choose whatever ones are like getting 99% of like what both parties want. Yeah. That's the kind of optimistic. Yeah, I guess another way to phrase what you're saying there is kind of that um, there's a lot of maybe... There could be in the future a lot of indifference to the well-being and flourishing of others, but there probably will also be a decent bunch of sincere altruism and concern for other people, and there won't be an offsetting amount of sadism yes. where people yeah, are like yeah, they're yeah. desperate to harm other people as much as possible. And so, if you combine kind of indifference plus like nice altruism, then on average that actually works out to an okay situation. Exactly, and in general, that's a, when we're thinking about the value of the long-term future. That's just the crucial asymmetry where I think there's an enormous number of ways the future could go such that we lose almost all of our potential. And those things are close to zero. They might be like a little bit good, a little bit bad. 
there are some ways in which the world could go, which are very, very good. We've got the people who are just really morally concerned and are trying to just do the best thing possible. And it's very hard to see ways in which there's worlds where like things could go as badly as possible, where, yeah, like how many people in history are like, you know, the effective, the effective anti-altruists. Yeah, yeah. It's not even effective just, sadism. Not, yeah, exactly. Effective sadists. What, what like, the, how would they get along with one another, I suppose? I guess they need to limit their sadism to people outside the effective sadism movement. Otherwise, it would uh, be very difficult to coordinate. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, yeah, they just love <laughs> suffering as an ideal and want to produce as much suffering as possible. It's like things have gone really badly long if yeah. uh, <laughs> those are the people that control the future. Yeah. And so I think that's the way we should think about it. And this is true for futures in general, and then also within a future, you know, something like this kind of more liberal egalitarian future, where it's like, as you say, there's many people who are like, hey, I want castles for myself, or then there's other people who are like, look, we just want, you know, whatever that is that's like morally best, morally just world, and then like, you know, trade and compromise such that like, you know, if something like well-being is the thing that matters, then like trade away suffering and like trade promotion of happiness. Yeah. So to date, it seems like there's been a much bigger focus on extinction risk than there has been on kind of improving moral values. And I think one reason for that is that the idea of trying to convince other people to have better values, which in practice almost always cashes out to like the values that the speaker holds, or to trying to like basically persuade people of your perspective on things, it feels more hostile than trying to prevent a disaster that in principle everyone would be against. Yeah, should we worry that this kind of moral improvement like sounds good from one point of view, but like isn't as cooperative as as other activities in, in, in a way? Yeah, I think there's two things I want to say. One is that I count... AI safety and AI alignment as in the kind of values bucket or the trajectory change bucket, where even in the scenario where a missile-aligned AI takes over and um, kills everyone, civilization continues. Right. Decisively, the, risk, the threat is because the AI has its own goals and builds the civilization that's maximizing for paperclips or something, or something very alien compared to us. And that's still of moral value, and it like, could be positive, could be negative, and it really matters whether that AI builds happy paperclips or unhappy paperclips yeah. or um, whatever, whatever else. Yeah. So I think like thinking of AI as an extinction risk in the sense of like, oh, and then that happens and then there's nothing afterwards is just from a moral perspective, I think, the wrong kind of framing. But then, yeah, secondly, onto your actual question of, yeah, promoting values and moral advocacy, is that hostile? And I think it really depends on the methods one uses. So... If it's that I go around and I just brainwash people or trick people into having my moral views, which has happened a lot throughout time, there's just, again, the dictators take power and then brainwash their population as best they can to yeah. propaganda. That seems very hostile. If, in contrast, it's like what the abolitionists did, which is you make arguments, you write books, perhaps you demonstrate, you like make more salient the suffering that is happening then you try and like change both public and political elite opinion that way. I don't really see that, how that is hostile. In the same way as trying to have, get people to have better empirical beliefs is also not hostile. Yeah. I guess, yeah, the, the thing that might be missed in the hostile framing is that, so people have specific ideas about what is good, but they also have this like broader goal 
at least most people, of like forming more accurate ideas or like wanting to engage in a continuous reflective process where their views will change and should change if they encounter exactly. new arguments that they find persuasive or new information that, that shifts their ideas. So they're not uh, just like machines that want to keep exactly the same values and exactly the same goals that they happen to hold at this instant, no matter what, what else comes up. Exactly. And then if they're not, <laughs> if it is, I don't know, Stalin and he has this ideology and he'll, he's like, I will never change my mind. They're not, it's not really the sort of agent that I think I should be cooperating with. I see. Um, it's more like... Because there's no reciprocity there. Yeah, I think uh, that was more just a bold intuition. Okay, right. <laughs> the lack of reciprocity, yeah. I think, yeah, seems correct. There's not a relevant sense of like, oh, well, if we were in each other's shoes, like, you know, would, be, would Stalin be like looking out for me? And like, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess, so there's, within the framework of wanting to improve the trajectory that we're on, wanting to improve values, there's maybe like two different stories that people sometimes tell. One is this story of like us being on a very long-term journey where we want to engage in a, very long-term reflection. And I guess in, on this picture, you know, humans are around for a very long time and we want to have like really good philosophy departments doing yeah. very good moral <laughs> philosophy, I guess, as well as collecting relevant empirical information. The other is this kind of emergency situation where we might be about to create artificial intelligence quite yep, soon. Yep. That creates the potential for like lock-in of whatever dumb stuff we happen to believe today. Yep. <laughs> on which, because it's, it's not about just like persuading people that we need to engage in some like extended reflection at some future time. Although, I mean, possibly you could take that approach. You might also just be like, we just have to like fix the like most barbaric dumb ideas that people hold now so we don't like accidentally lock them in in like the 2040s. Yeah. Um, is, is that kind of, is that how you picture it? Yeah. I mean, both of those things just seem correct to me. I mean, in the case of AI, I mean, there's obviously risks from misaligned AI takeover, risks from lock-in. And so the thing we want to do is like, okay, we want to have some process that's just like careful and carefully navigated trajectory from where we are today to then, you know, having like very well-informed and reflective moral beliefs. It's possible that happens in calendar time very quickly. Again, you know, we mentioned earlier that AI could very rapidly speed up kind of technological progress. Potentially it could very rapidly speed up kind of ethical reflection as well. So if the arguments that AI leads to this kind of tech or intelligence boom happen, maybe in calendar time this all happens over the decade or something. I see, yeah. <laughs> but at least in the, in the sense of just like how much intellectual progress is going, being made, it could be like huge difference between this kind of immediate lock-in and this like broader kind of reflective process. Yeah, it seems in the like lock-in risk soon scenario, we do not have time to persuade everyone in the world of, of the importance yeah. of our philosophy and to like, I mean, we don't even have time for you and I to like spend years to come like trying to improve our moral views and root out all of the errors that we might be making right now, let alone the, the entire world. And most people are like focused on feeding themselves and getting things done. Uh, yep. They don't have time for like constant philosophy. So it seems like really the only path is to like, if you do have AIs that are substantially smarter than humans, able to do research faster than us, we need to find some way to explain what we think of as the project of philosophy and find some way to hand it over to them so they can do a better job of it than we've ever been able to. And then basically have them take over philosophy and fix it for us before they then go and change everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, so there's this idea of differential technological progress. Again, I think comes from Nick Bostrom. Just there's certain technologies you want before other technologies. And having AI systems that can model your reason very well, but aren't agents in the relevant sense. You just put in a question, they give, you, give out an answer, but they're not like trying to make big changes, trying to make changes in the world. Ensuring that that comes, <laughs> which is more, more kind of like if you see GPT-3. Or Google just, Maps. Yeah. Or Google Maps, exactly. That's kind of like you put in text, you get out text. 
compared to say AIs that play StarCraft or something, which is more like you give it an environment and then it's like taking goals to like improve its reward function. You really want those like AIs that are just non-agentic, but yet just oracles that give, answer questions able, within the constraints. Of, exactly, you know. yeah, able to give you answers. Um, you really want them to come first. One thing I think I should say about the kind of values framing is that the natural thing to think like, okay, cool, I care about the values of the future. I'm going to go and take to the streets and like convince people. And like, that's definitely one thing that one can do. It's not the only implication by any means of thinking about the importance of values. Take the example of like nuclear war. So normally the standard, the kind of long-termist analysis of a nuclear war is well, what's the probability of nuclear winter? Given a nuclear winter, how many deaths? Like, what's the chance of this leading to extinction? But here's another thing, which is just nuclear war, even putting nuclear winter to the side, could result in just most of the liberal democracies in the world being wiped off the map. Yeah. And then what's the chance that we get back to this current level of technology? What's the chance that liberal democracy is the kind of predominant way of organizing society? I'm not sure. Again, it's one of these tough questions, It's on the order of kind of 50-50 is my guess. And then, well, would you prefer artificial general intelligence to be developed in a liberal democracy or would you prefer it to be developed in some, you know, dictatorship or authoritarian state? And again, I think like much more likely to go well if it's the former rather than the latter. And it's quite plausible actually that that's the main, like when we look to the very long-term future, that's the biggest deal when it comes to a nuclear war is actually like the impact of nuclear war and the distribution of values for the civilization that returns from that, rather than on the chance of extinction. And so that's, I'm just using that as an example of how this kind of like, the potential sensitivity of the long-term future to the values that are predominant today, it starts to impact like lots of things that we might care about. Okay, yeah, zooming out for a second, I guess a potentially kind of crucial question that might shift someone between wanting to work on extinction versus wanting to work on this like improving values cluster uh, is whether they think the future is likely to be good, like right now, conditional on, on us surviving. So if you think that, in fact, if we just on our current track, don't go extinct, then we're likely to do more harm than good. We're like, likely to produce like more suffering or more just like bad things than, than, than offsetting positives. Then in fact, you might like be kind of indifferent to extinction from a long-termist perspective anyway. And so you're definitely going to want to focus on the, on the values improvement. Yeah, what, do you, what are kind of the, the key arguments either way on like whether we should expect there to be more good stuff or bad stuff in the future, given like where we stand today? Uh, I think there are two categories of argument that one can make on this. And I should say both are pretty weak as far as evidence goes. <laughs> yeah. So one is you can just take an empirical argument. You can say, okay, throughout history, has the world been good or bad? And then secondly, what's the trend line looking like? How does that change over time? And then the second are more kind of theoretical arguments you can make. So I can take these in turn. Yeah, yeah. I, one thing I really like in the, in the book that I hadn't seen elsewhere is you try to do this sort of accounting of like all of the goods and bads that have existed in the universe up to this point. Uh, yeah, uh, maybe you can walk us through that. Sure, yeah. So I do this deep dive and it's pretty wild to answer this question of just, has life so far been good <laughs> um, or bad? And not only, I mean, the thing that normally happens is that this is evaluated from a pure utilitarian standpoint, whereas I think we should look at this from a variety of moral perspectives. I think on the question of, you know, has, have things to date been good or bad? I think the answer is just, it's unclear. So one thing that's weird it's is... It's a cop-out, Will. Come on, pick a side. <laughs> I know. 
I think I would, absolutely all things considered, I think I would probably say it's good, actually. Okay. Um, that's like slightly controversial yeah, in, yeah, these, yeah. in these um, parts. Yeah. Um, that comes a fair bit from model uncertainty. I think huh. it's, um, but here's the thing. Okay. okay. Yeah. Looking backwards, let's say it's unclear where you draw the line at what beings are conscious or not. But let's say you allow invertebrates in there. Almost all beings are roundworms, nematodes. <laughs> yeah. And so you've got to answer the question. Like, in fact, most of the question is just, what's a nematode life like? <laughs> and if I say that's unclear, I yeah. think it doesn't sound so much like a cop-out anymore, <laughs> but more just yeah. like, okay, this is really hard to know. Yeah. Even if you exclude invertebrates and you just look at vertebrates, um, well, 80% of all life years that have ever been lived, and again, this is extremely approximate, are fish. Okay. Uh, 20% are amphibians and reptiles. And... You know, that adds up to 100% okay, yeah. rounding up. Yeah. Um, I think humans are like a th- less than a thousandth of a percentage point. I see. And so, okay, now the main question is what is life like as a fish? So, you know, if you could be a randomly selected fish from all history. Do you, would, do you, do you rate your chances? Yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. That good, is that net good or is, would you prefer to have never been born? Fish have terrible suffering. Obviously, their deaths are like very bad. Most of the lifetime, the deaths are short, though, in general. Um, most of the time is like swimming around as a fish. Seems like about neutral. So the main lesson, I think, is just, I think it's pretty close to the zero level compared to like, you know, how good experience could be or how bad it could be yeah. kind of on net. Then when I think we broaden out from utilitarianism uh, and consider like at least total utilitarianism, consider other moral perspectives, we get considerations that push in both directions. So... A total utilitarian says that adding a being to the world, if that being has more happiness than suffering, that's good. If it has more suffering than happiness, that's bad. But many views of population ethics say that actually, in order to add a being to the world to be good, it doesn't just have to be like more positive than negative in terms of its experiences. It has to be sufficiently more positive than negative, like actually, you know, quite a bit better than zero. And Views have that implication in order to escape what Derek Parfit called a repugnant conclusion where you conclude that very, very large number of beings with lives that are just a little bit positive add up collectively to more than, you know, 10 trillion beings of lives of utter bliss because just lots of little drops of water add up to more than a tank of water. But if you have this view that, okay, a life has to be sufficiently good for it to be positive and Mm. below that it's um, negative... Then you get the conclusion that life today has strongly been negative. Just um, because he thinks like, relatively few people or relatively few beings are going to be above whatever this kind of critical threshold is above which it's good for someone to exist. Exactly, yeah. So if you think that the what Parfit calls the repugnant conclusion world is a bad world, you know, this indefinite life of beings that just barely lives worth living, like at best, that's what <laughs> history looks like. I see. Like the 600 million years in which we've had creatures with brains and so you would conclude pretty strongly that um history has been you know uh, the history of life has been bad on the other hand you might want to put in goods that are not just about well-being and uh you know if uh insofar as i'm sympathetic to views that don't just count well-being like actually these move me a fair bit at least intuitively so just the fact of like complexity and social organization and having conscious experience at all like I think if these they, things are valuable in themselves. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, at least intuitively I find that like a pretty plausible 
yeah. um, moral view. I feel uh, like if you're someone who values justice and disvalues injustice, then things look almost even worse than they do to the utilitarian. Okay. Like, has there been justice in the world? Okay, you, you disagree. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I think there is a bit of when we talk, so philosophers call these objective goods, they're things kind of other than well-being. I do think there's an asymmetry there where it's much plausible that there are, for many things, objective goods than objective bads. So it seems to me like, so people talk about knowledge being good, okay. where I think like having a justified through belief is a good thing. I mean, I find it hard to get an intuition about that, but yeah. some people do. Whereas having a false belief being a bad thing, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I, I find it hard to find that intuitive. Okay. Or like the creation of like complexity or like consciousness being good in and of itself. Yeah. Like what's the, what's the inverse of that? I'm like, oh, I'm not really... I don't think there really is one. I see, I see. There I, might be some cases. So something that didn't make it into the book is this incredibly stirring passage from Robert Nozick um, who talks about, yeah, injustices like the Holocaust, but also, you know, the slave trades and so on. And his view is like, yeah, they were just so bad that they like outweigh. I mean, he actually puts it in even more poetic language. He says that it's uh, humanity has lost its claim to continuation. Oh, like wow. anything that you thought was distinctively valuable about humanity has been struck from the record because of these great injustices. All this is to say is that yeah. like once you get into these kind of objective goods and bads, how on earth do you do this accounting? Like you're just throwing intuitions around. And uh, that's part of maybe the reason why I'm skeptical that such goods and bads actually exist. Right. But I want to be like um, ecumenical in the analysis here. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of the, the state of the world up until now. Uh, if, I guess if people want to hear more about that, they can, they, can, they can read the book. The other important consideration you mentioned is the trajectory. So are things getting better, better than worse? I suppose we probably have to do this one a little bit, a little bit more quickly. Uh, yeah. But yeah, do you want to uh, yeah, summarize what you think the trajectory is? Uh, yeah, so then I think two things. There's the trajectory of the world. My guess is that is getting better, even after you factor in the enormous amount of suffering that humanity has brought via factory farms. But I think if you look at the underlying mechanisms, it's quite pos it's more positive, where in the long-term future, how many beings do you expect to be agents? As in, they're making decisions and they're reasoning and making plans versus patients, which are beings that are conscious but are not able to, like... Control you know, the circumstances. Control the circumstances. Where the trajectory to date is pretty good for agents. So... Certainly, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, I think human well-being has just been getting better and better. Then for animals, it's quite unclear. So there are far fewer wild animals than there were before. Whether that's good or bad depends on your view and whether wild animals have lives that are good or bad. Um, there are many more animals in factory farms and their lives are just decisively worse. However, I think it's unlikely that when you, you know, extrapolate these trends into the distant future, that you expect there to be very large numbers of moral patients rather than like it mainly consisting of, you know, model agents who can yeah. uh, control their circumstances. It's interesting. On, on this model, basically until there were humans, basically everyone was a moral patient in the sense that exactly. maybe uh, wild animals, I guess with like con some conceivable partial exceptions, they neither had really the intellectual capacity nor the like practical know-how to control the situation in which they're in in order to make their lives much better. Yeah. And so the fraction of all like conscious experience that's being had by agents is kind of going from zero, uh, like gradually up. And we might, at least so long as we don't allow there to be patients by effectively like prohibiting future forms of slavery, um, yeah. Yeah. then we might expect it to, to reach 100 and then for most of their lives to be reasonably good. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, and it makes sense that their lives are reasonably good because, well, they want their lives to be good and they're able to change it. Yeah. And so then that relates to the kind of final argument, which is the more kind of like sitting in an armchair, thinking about things argument, um, but which I think is very powerful, which is just that, as we said earlier, some agents systematically pursue things that are good because they are good. Very, very few agents systematically pursue things that are bad because they are bad. Yeah. Lots of people do things because they're self-interested and that has negative side effects. Sometimes people can be confused and think what they're doing is good, but actually it's bad. But I think there's this strong asymmetry between, you know, if you imagine a very best possible future, like how likely is that? What's happened? And I can tell a story, which is like, hey, we managed to sort out these risks. We had this long deliberative process. People were able to figure things out and um, people just went and tried to produce the best world. That's not so crazy. But then if I tell you the, the opposite of that, it's like, oh, we have a worst possible world. Like everyone got together and decided to make the worst possible world. It's like, seems very hard indeed. Yeah. So I think kind of, yeah, it's like very plausible to me that we squander almost all of the value we could achieve. It's like totally on the table that we could really bring about like a flourishing near best society. And then seems much, much less plausible that we bring about truly worst society. Yeah. And that's why the kind of trajectory of the future, I think the value of it skews positive. Yeah. Just before we move on, this question of like, well, either will the future be good or bad? Or like, has the universe been good up until now or, or, yeah. or bad up until now? These seem like such important, like fundamental questions for understanding existence, understanding our situation, that you'd think that there'd be like lots of professors, lots of academics who specialized in this question of, you know, I'm in the subdiscipline of like understanding what it's like to be a fish in order to like help to answer this broader question of whether the universe has been good or bad. Yeah. And yet, it's funny because you know that there are going to be no academics who have specialized in this question more or less. I don't think that there actually are any, or that this is like a discipline yep. exactly. It just seems crazy. It, yeah, it, it's, it's just, it's just I mean, funny. Yeah, It's completely crazy to me. I mean, especially if, if philosophers are going to talk about anything, you think it would be yeah. this. But you get, I mean, David Benatar has made some arguments. You know, Parfit makes these like casual comments. But yeah, very, very few people have like really given a sustained treatment of this topic. Yeah. The problem is wider than that. So... Within psychology, here's a question. How many people in the world today, or kind of in psychology and economics, how many people in the world today have lives that are above zero, such that they are actually happy to have lived? This is enormously important. Forget all the long-term stuff. Suppose you're just doing public health. It really matters. Like if you're weighing life-saving interventions compared to interventions that improve quality of life, it really matters, the answer to that question. Um, because many, it's basically the same logic as with the species at the, at the species level. Because you say, well, if people's lives are actually just like bad, exactly, uh, yeah, then, then we don't want to like let let's let's set aside extending life for now and just improve their lives so that it's good when their lives are longer. Exactly, yeah, exactly, and so and it means you might be sympathetic to you know people who smoke or people who take drugs that shorten their life expectancy but are improving the quality of life while they are alive. Right. Obviously, smoking is also addiction and so on, or just like lots of things like. If your life is close to zero in well-being, then shortening your life expectancy in order to make your well-being greater just makes sense. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so before this book was written, um, how many published studies were there addressing this question? Uh, I'm going to guess zero. Zero is the answer. Exactly. (laughs) So there's still zero published studies. There's one unpublished by Joshua Green, Matt Killingsworth, that somewhat does address this question, looking at just people in the US in particular. And then I commissioned one that's just 
by uh, Abigail Hoskin, Lucius Caviola, and Joshua Lewis. It's just directly asking people, I mean, a variety of questions, but including, does your um, life contain more happiness than suffering? Uh, we asked that of people in the US and India. And so among the respondents, 16% of respondents in the US said that their life contained more suffering than happiness. And about 40% said it was more happiness than suffering. Yeah. Um, in India, it was 9% that said that um, they had more suffering than happiness. So Indian respondents actually... Um, Rated their lives better. Rated their lives better than By the that US. measure. Mm. Yes. And then like these aren't representative of the country necessarily. Mm. But that's still like that kind of, you know, the standard economic method of doing cost-effectiveness analysis, the quality-adjusted life year, assumes that death is the worst state you can be in. That's zero. Mm. You can't go below zero. Whereas Regrettably. like the, empiric- the empirical evidence is that lots of people think their lives are, yeah, are, worse, are worse than zero. And yeah. that would really mean that we should switch, like have much more focus on improving quality of life rather than saving life. Yeah, which is like quite an intuitive implication in a way. I mean, lots of people yeah. have said, well, we like massively underrate the importance of um, treating mental health, for example, for over, sure. over physical ailments for reasons kind of along these lines. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, uh, let's push on and talk about some of the various concerns or objections or clusters of worries that people have about long-termism, either either philosophically or, or in practice. I guess one strain of criticism that you that you know I've heard a ton over the last 10 or 15 years is that because long-termists are trying to have positive effects that are very far down the road, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years in the future, there isn't really a very good feedback loop to figure out whether what we're doing is helping or harming. And so this basically makes the entire enterprise far less tractable than, say, trying to you know, improve the health of people around today, where like, you can clearly see whether you cured someone of cancer or whether they, they died of cancer. You get this like, very rapid feedback loop that allows you to improve what you're doing uh, very quickly. Whereas if you're well, so e- even just on the, on the measure of like trying to prevent nuclear war right now, you'll never really know whether you succeeded. Very hard to tell what things will work and what things won't. But then like thinking about the longer term kind of chain of consequences that you're trying to bring, up, bring about, if you're trying to prevent a nuclear war in order to then like make the future go better in some of the ways that like the indirect channels that you've been describing, you'll be long dead before you ever figure out whether, whether that worked. And so you're just kind of floundering around in the dark. I'll let you maybe give your favorite formulation of this concern first, and then maybe you can respond to it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I thought your formulation was very good, where you might just think, look, most activities have very little impact. Indeed, the way you manage to avoid having very little impact is precisely by like testing and learning and iterating. And if you're just trying to do good, you know, because of these like somewhat armchair arguments, perhaps, again, this is how the criticism would go, you're just as likely to do harm as you are to do good. And so really you should think that you're having about zero impact. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, why isn't this a decisive objection? Well, I think there's, I think it's like very important. Like, yeah. It's a great <laughs> objection. I mean, yeah, it's a great <laughs> objection, exactly. And it, like, uh, I think it's something like we should be really worried about. There's two thoughts. One is like kind of sad response. Um, a second is like somewhat more optimistic. Yeah, the more pessimistic response is just, unfortunately, this bleeds into everything. Yeah. So once you've endorsed the evaluative claims that most value is in the future because most people are in the future and they matter too, then we're not getting feedback loops on anything. So you might be working in development and you're you know, providing benefits. You're getting you know, feedback loops on whether bed nets work, but almost all the value is in the very long-term future. And how does saving, someone, saving someone's life them 
insecticide-themed bed nets impact the very long-term future? Well, there's lots of, you know, there's just many, many, many like causal consequences. You're not getting any feedback loops on whether those causal consequences are good or bad. Yeah. And you're just as in the dark empirically as the folks who are doing more peculiar long-termist stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and both of you are stuck just making theoretical arguments like based on your model of the world about which things you expect to have better long-term consequences. Exactly. And that's even if you say, oh, but I just think that all just washes out all of those, you know, knock-on effects of, you know, improving economic development or saving lives. They will just cancel out. That is itself a claim. Yeah. And in fact, just as... And just as speculative a claim and actually quite a bold claim. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the pessimistic response is just, yeah, we're all in that situation. And if you think like, okay, well, that means that we're just completely shooting in the dark, that just applies to everything. And so there's a little bit of a kind of dominance argument you can make against this, which is, well, perhaps we can't learn because we don't have feedback loops. Then... Just everything's on the table. <laughs> like everything's just equally as good or equally as bad, depending on your perspective. Yeah. But then, well, there's nothing we can do in that world. So we shouldn't really think about it. We should at least act on the assumption that well-meaning people who are really trying to reason about things are doing, you know, at least better than neutral. They're doing yeah. like a little bit good, which okay. is what I think. Yeah. Okay, so the argument here is an asymmetry uh, between... So we could live in a world where... People who try to improve the long-term future because of the unforeseeability of things, in fact, their actions on average are of neutral value. They neither help nor hurt. Uh, some help and some hurt that they cancel out. Uh, we could live in a world where people who try to make the long-term future go better, in fact, on net make things worse yeah. because maybe they're drawn to counterproductive activities by some mechanism. Or we could live in a world where things are very obscure. It's hard to tell what impact your actions have. But nonetheless, people have some ability to discern actions that are more likely to do harm, that are more likely to, to, to make things better than to, than to make them worse. Now, you want to say there's an asymmetry between the second and third one, that it's unlikely that we live in a world where people like you and me trying to make the long-term future go better, in fact, are drawn systematically to harmful activities. Absolutely. Um, and so instead, you kind of are choosing between the first and the third, and then on average, that, that, sh- that suggests that things are positive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do, do you want to explain why the second one is unlikely? Well, I just think, again, you've got you know, people who are like aiming to achieve something, carefully reasoning about achieving something. Like In general, if I learn... like this person is trying to achieve X, does that make X happening more or less likely? So yeah. It's like obviously more likely because there's like, now there's this kind of agent trying to make X happen. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And people in general do achieve their goals, or at least make their goals more likely rather than less likely. Mm. And then similarly in this case, well, what does the evidence say about how best to achieve our goals of you know making the long-term future go better? Well, evidence in general points in like, uh, good direction yeah as in like makes your beliefs more likely to be true than false you know do i think have reason to think that we're like more likely to believe true things than false things i think yes and i think that's amply demonstrated in cases where we do get feedback effects like forecasting makes this kind of very clear so that kind of clearly i think tilts things in a positive between those two you get things tilted clearly in a positive direction yeah makes sense okay so another kind of broad cluster of concerns that you hear quite a bit about long-termism is that it proves too much or I guess in some ways being it's too close to being a fanatical idea and yeah this comes in various different flavors but basically if you buy that we should care about future generations at least somewhat per, per person and you also buy that trillions and trillions or trillions of trillions of people could exist in future 
then it seems like you might plausibly believe that you should do really extreme stuff just because it might have some tiny influence on humanity's trajectory or, or all of these things in the future. So in, in practice, that might mean, you know, totally changing your job or giving away all your money or breaking the law just, just to have some negligible impact, basically, of producing some vast amount of value found in the future. And I think a lot of people think it's kind of even more weird and unappealing than that because the impact that we're going to, the impact that you might be having if you quit your job and did something completely different is so like totally unknown. It's not, not only uncertain in the sense that it's unknown whether a coin that you'll flip is going to come up heads or tails, but it's like much more deeply unknown than, than that. It feels like super speculative, like, uh, you know, betting your entire career on your estimate of what are the chances that they're aliens that look like horses in the, somewhere in the Andromeda galaxy. It just feels like pulled out of your out of your rear end yeah do you, do you want to give a formulation of this fanaticism objection that you like or, or maybe maybe i did an okay job of it there well i think there's a few different objections that maybe got run together there so the first one is about tiny probabilities of enormous amounts of value and that's you know a problem for decision theory where i think very intuitively yeah like okay i can give you you know i can produce some guarantee of good like saving a life or a one in a trillion, 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 trillion chance of producing a sufficiently large amount of value that the expected value, that is the amount of value multiplied by the probability of achieving it, is even greater than the expected value of saving one life. And it feels like, okay, so what do we do? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it really doesn't seem like you should do the incredibly low probability thing. Yeah. That seems very intuitive. And then the answer is like, can you design a decision theory that avoids that implication without having some other incredibly counterintuitive implications? Yeah. It turns out the answer is no, actually. <laughs> right. Um, now, this isn't to say that you should do the thing that involves like going after tiny probabilities of enormous amounts of value. It's just within the state where we can like, you know, formally prove that there's a paradox here yeah. that... I'm sorry, just the philosophers have failed you. Okay. <laughs> we have no good answer the about what to do here. In yeah. this respect, yeah. I think in practice, thankfully, we don't actually need to really encounter this issue because the probabilities we're talking about are not astronomically small in this way. So what's my probability of extinction from engineered pandemics this century? I tend to say about 0.5%. Like, you could easily say it's higher or lower that's not a low probability. Like, what's my chance of dying in a car crash in the course of my life? You know, it's about the same. Might be about the same. Yeah. Do I wear a seatbelt? I absolutely wear the seatbelt. Yeah. And in fact, I wear the seatbelt even if I'm taking just a one-mile drive. That's about a one in a 300 million chance of dying. <laughs> Still seems like a good thing to do. And so society as a whole is taking like really, and then I think the risks from AI are much higher again. Um, so society as a whole is really taking some quite meaningful risks without any sort of proportions at all. And so we're really not at all in the world where it's like, this is a one in a trillion, trillion, trillion chance. In fact, it's a world where like, these are really quite meaningful probabilities. And as a community, I think we're actually going to make like a reasonably large dent in these probabilities while also like, you know, probably making the world better in the near term along the way. So even though... I think there's just not really a good answer about what to do about these tiny probabilities of enormous amounts of value. That doesn't mean that, like, if a probability is one in a thousand or one in a million, like, that's not so small as to be getting into these terrible issues. Yeah. I guess just to, to calibrate people, 
you know, uh, political scientists try to estimate what's the probability of an election being swung by a single vote. And in a smallish country, in a moderately close election, it's often like one in a million. Yeah. In like the biggest countries, it's more like one in 10 million if you live in a, you know, a swing seat or a swing state and so on. And I think many, many people will accept that it could be reasonable to go and vote in an election in the hope that you will swing it because the impact will be really massive if you do, yep. even though the probability of swinging the election is, uh, is really low. Or at least the fact that the odds of swinging the election is low is not an in-principle argument why it must always be irrational to, uh, to vote because you're somehow getting messed around by impossibly low probabilities. Yep. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I suppose, yeah, we might think that the probability of some of the projects that we're engaged in preventing human extinction or putting us on a better track, uh, you know, at least on the order of like one in one in 10 million, given how few people are working on some of these problems that we think, you know, have very serious, like you're, you're saying one in 200 or maybe, maybe like higher chance of, of ending humanity. Could be ending, yeah. And like from, you know, and especially people, I think the right way often to think is like, as a member of the community that is taking action that you're a part of, like... You know, in other contexts, if it's like, oh, I'm going on this protest, it's like, oh, well, what's the chance of affecting change? It's like, well, that's just not the way of thinking about it. It's like, because we're very bad at reasoning in that way. And so you think like, well, there's this whole movement doing climate protests or whatever. You know, that movement maybe has a significant chance, 10% chance of making policy. And that would be really huge. And I'm like, you know, maybe a thousandth of the movement or something. Yeah. Then you can be like, okay, yeah, this is actually looking like a good use of time. Yeah. Um, so uh, some people brought this up in response to the last time that we talked about this, yeah. this, this general idea is they were saying, well, sure, maybe the risk of humanity going extinct because of bioweapons or whatever yeah. is one in 200. But your individual chance by contributing, uh, by, by working on that problem of preventing that from happening is much, much lower, more like in the uh, chance of one in a million, one in 10 million, one in 100 million. And I think there we think there's kind of some other conceptual or like they're thinking about it the wrong way, as, as you're saying, because you could apply this to all kinds of actions that require more than one agent or even require you to engage in sustained effort over a period of time where you're kind of exactly, coordinating yeah. with yourself on different days. And we think it's, it's actually worth thinking at a, at a more like group level where you think, given the full cost of a project, given all of the people who might have to participate in it for it to reach a reasonable scale, and given the probability of that project as a whole with all of those uh, inputs succeeding, is it worth it? in aggregate and then if it is then it's probably worth it for each of the individual contributors to participate in it and that's a much more like natural way of evaluating whether something is worthwhile than thinking about whether it's worth you going in for one individual day more to work on the project it's like too granular exactly and we don't have good intuitions about it and if you don't have that view then you have this weird thing where it's like oh yeah you know the climate protest community as a whole they should be doing this protest but every individual is wrong to do so it's like what (laughs) Like, yeah. okay, there's some we like there's something weird there. If you think, okay, the a large group of people is above the probability threshold for acting, but if the individual is below, it's like, come on, something's gone wrong there in your reasoning. Yeah, and also it has nothing to do with long termism in particular. It's, it, exactly, yeah. this is just a general issue for decision theory, and yeah, and then the other thing that I find wild is that sometimes people declare fanaticism with very large probabilities. I had um, someone say, yeah, well, they're really cute, who, but they have power. Um, okay. Like 5% is like, oh, yeah, that's a fanatical probability. I'm like, okay, no, do you not take out insurance? Like, you don't wear a seatbelt. Hold on, what do you mean by a fanatical probability? As in, if you're doing something and there was like a 5% chance of catastrophe resulting from it, I see. that's too low a probability. To you even just be... ignore that. Okay, yeah. yeah, just in principle, you should dismiss such possibilities. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and like, surely they can't have been serious in the like deep sense of like, how that would affect their actions. Yeah. But in general, people are just very poor at reasoning about probabilities. And so there's this other thing of just, 
even if I'm saying like, oh, it's a one in a hundred chance, people are like, oh, I don't know how to reason about that. Whereas look at things like, you know, taking out house fire insurance, wearing a seatbelt, exercising, like loads and loads of things we do are making differences that are far, far smaller to, you know, your chance of dying, for example, or losing your house. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's one, one strain of the fanaticism concern. Um, what's, what's another one? Uh, yeah, so then a couple of other things you linked to. One was just, should we sacrifice like all of the pleasant well-being for the sake of posterity? It's like, okay, well, there's so much at value at stake. You know, future people outnumber us a thousand, a million, a trillion to one. So even if the present generation is entirely impoverished, surely that would be the right thing to do if it makes the future ego even a little bit better. Yeah. Sounds, sounds bad. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Sounds bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the response? Uh, yeah. Well, I think there's two again. The first one, which is really the most important thing is, again, like maybe we come like figure that out when we come to it, which will be never. Mm. Um, because at the <laughs> moment we, you know, spend and pick this number out of the air of 0.1% of global resources and making the long term go better. Um, it's probably even less than that in the yeah. relevant sense. Let's bump that up to 1% or something. And then, yeah. then we'll see the world where we're really getting to like, oh, should it be 50% or should it be 90% or should it be even higher? I think it's just like very far away. And again, yeah. like I think that probably by that point, we're just generally building a flourishing society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, rather than like anything that's like very targeted. And it's, we're not just far away from that world by happenstance. It's because people care about themselves and are not like so altruistic that they tend to completely work themselves to the bone and make themselves miserable in order to help people who aren't even around. Exactly. It's yeah. kind of like saying, oh, if you argue that climate change is so important, then like we should completely impoverish ourselves or like as a small nation, we should completely impoverish ourselves in order to, to prevent climate change. But it's like, you know, that's never going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like we can't even get people to coordinate to do like basic stuff. Yeah. Yeah, And so there is this more general philosophical question of what are the demands of morality? And so it really maps the classic Peter Singer arguments that, okay, I've given 90% of my income away and now I'm on like, let's say it's 5,000 pounds per year, but that's still a lot more than the poorest people in the world. And by donating, you know, half of that over the course of a couple of years, I can save a life. Well, it's only half your income. You still live on that and that's not worth as you know, being a bit poorer is not comparable to saving a life. And so from the Peter Singer arguments, just looking at extreme poverty, it seems like you get this conclusion that you should just keep giving and giving until... You're in absolute penury. Exactly. And then it's like, okay, well, a lot of people, I think, think, okay, that's too extreme. But at the same time, we should be doing more than we are now. There's some kind of middle ground. And again, I think moral philosophers have just failed us on that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't really know of like a good principled philosophical account of where one draws the line such that mm. like there's plenty of practical advice which we've talked about a lot you know reflect set what's a good you know a good line for how much one plans to give choose something sustainable choose something, sustainable. Choose something that other people can emulate yeah exactly yeah. there's lots of things like that but in terms of a deep philosophical principle it's really hard for the answer not to be that you either should give nothing or everything you can yeah, I suppose and, the alternative would be that you say uh, it's a threefold like difference. You can value yourself exactly three times as much as yeah, exactly. uh, people in but, severe poverty. But actually, yeah. even that wouldn't work. Okay, because then if, if people get poorer, then well, no, because uh, let's oh. say you value yourself three times as much, you still give everything. <laughs> so you now don't have to give to exactly the level at which okay. you are as 
poor as someone living in extreme poverty. Mm. It's very close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Because at the moment, like, you can provide like 100 times as much benefit as you can to yourself. Yeah. So I guess if you're three times richer, well, the poorest people in the world live on about $2 per day. That's like six, $700. So, okay, you're living on about a thousand pounds per year. <laughs> right. That's, you know, that's the three X equivalent. I see. Yeah. So it's the problem is like, um, no matter what number philosophers pull out of a hat for that ratio, then, then it just becomes an empirical question of like, how severe is the poverty and how rich are you? And like, exactly. in totally imaginable worlds, you're still going to be making enormous sacrifices. Exactly. And yeah, you get this parallel issue when you're thinking about the long-term future. So, okay, we should weigh the interests of the present generation more than future generations. I think that's true. I have special relationships with people in the present. They have given me benefits that I should like give them back. Okay, so how much more do you how much more weight do you give? Well, this has come up in the context of a discount rate. If you discount the well-being of future generations, basically by any number at all, but by the same number every year, then you give them essentially no weight at all. And that seems wrong. <laughs> seems clearly wrong. Seems harsh. Exactly. If you give them no weight at all, so if you give no discount rate at all, then they're of overwhelming importance and we should sacrifice everything. There's basically no like really satisfactory theoretical middle ground. Can you have a geometrically decreasing discount rate? Well, like the I discount mean, rate itself like reduces each year into the future? Like, I mean, you, you can, mm, yeah. I mean, because so you have time and consistency that, problems. Uh, yes. I mean, I think that is how you should uh, discount. Uh, it's called a discount rate, declining discount rate schedule. Huh, okay. But it's still going to be like you're completely hostage to how many future people there will be. I see. Yeah. And so again, you get the <laughs> either right. the conclusion that um, you do nothing because there aren't enough future people to outweigh this, or yeah. you just it's kind of like overwhelming, overwhelming importance. Yeah, I suppose because it becomes empirical again, then you you could you could live in a world where uh, you think, let's say, there's only the Milky Way galaxy, and so exactly, like yeah, yeah and, and in that world you're entitled to have a good life, and then you discover that there's other galaxies, and now you're like, oh no, now I based on the discount rate that I'd chosen before, I have to now I just have to give away absolutely everything. Exactly, which just doesn't seem doesn't seem that plausible. It's not intuitive. But on the other hand, if it's like surely the amount we ought to do is sensitive to the stakes. So, like, let's say, Rob, you have now, you've donated so much that you're now on £1,000 per year. You can go down to £500 per year. The world will end okay. if you don't. Okay. Seems like morally you ought to do that. And it seems that's because the stakes really are relevant. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we face the same issue when we're thinking about, again, from the philosophical perspective, like, how much ought the, sac- the present to give for future generations I think there's no like really firm line that isn't between like zero, which is implausible, and yeah. everything, which is also implausible. It feels like what so, people want to do intuitively is say something like, in a normal world, you should, you know, dedicate a third of your time or a third of your money at most to like helping other people. Yeah. And then unless things become like way worse than like what yeah. we're used to, then that is an acceptable amount and it and you shouldn't be very sensitive on the margin to how how the world is. It's like we want to do buckets somehow and then just like not have the buckets like spill over yeah. between like the personal and the altruistic bucket, except in like very extreme circumstances. Yeah, but then it's hard to argue that we're not in those very extreme yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Um, you know, and so in both of these cases I'm so the fanaticism case, the probabilities, I'm like, man, we've just got no idea. In this case, I'm like at least more sympathetic to the idea that like, yes, in terms of pure moral philosophy, like in principle, we should just do as much as we can to do the best thing. But again, like in practice, I just don't think it makes a difference because like the idea of like all of society dedicating itself to making the long-term future go well, it's like so ridiculously far off. What's actually happening now is it's just, yeah, do we give it essentially no concern or do we give it like some concern? And that's just robustly like a good thing to do. Yeah. I thought you might give kind of 
a different response to this, which is that there's maybe like different classes of moral concern. So, you know, this impartial morality or this impartial concern for the well-being of others that is kind of driving long-termism, that's like one class of moral concern. And we should maybe bracket how demanding that can be. And then it has to be weighed up against other classes of moral concern we have, like concern for people we know, concern for the world, like yeah. the concern for people around today. That has a different driving motivation and it should get some significant fraction of our resources as well because it's a different magisterium and it can't just be traded off one for one against the impartial one. Yeah, so that's a way you could go. But again, <laughs> it seems weird. It. Well, it just seems weird for it to be completely stakes insensitive. So it's like, okay, let's say it's a third on making things go better than partially speaking. And, you know, I spent a third of my income or the peasant generation has spent a third of its GDP. But now some new opportunity arises. Hmm. Much better than the previous ones. Yeah, or like, and really it's an emergency situation. Like the entire future is going to get turned into a like, dystopian hellscape. Hmm. If only we'd spend that extra percent. Um, <laughs> like obviously that matters. So having these kind of like hard cutoffs is like, yeah, again, from this like philosophy perspective, like a, yeah. not something that ends up theoretically satisfying at all. Yeah, I, I suppose. So on the demandingness thing, you can either... And uh, you, you kind of have to bite one of the bullets of either like the potential for fanatic demandingness or the potential for fanatic indifference to the harm that will be done if you don't act. And it is very hard to divide any middle ground between these. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. What about, I thought you might suggest that the idea of moral uncertainty, which you've written a lot about, might in some way bail us out here and help us find a reconciliation. So it's helpful on a different issue. So okay. in general, like very broad brush stylistically, I think when you take, so... There are these two major camps um, within moral philosophy, consequentialism and non-consequentialism. Consequentialism differs from non-consequentialism in two ways. One, it says that you don't really have personal prerogatives. So if there's something that's like, oh, it could be good for the world, but it would benefit me more if I you know, use this money to spend it on myself rather than helping others. Consequentialism says, no, you should just always do the thing that's best, even if that's best for other people. Non-consequentialism says sometimes it's okay. Like it can be <laughs> yeah. permissible to benefit yourself rather than just the impartial good. The second way in which consequentialism and non-consequentialism differ is on side constraints. So consequentialism says, in principle at least, it's just always about what outcome you produce. So if you can save, you know, more lives at the cost of sacrificing one life, then you ought to do that. And again, you know, there's big debates on how much the thought experiments that philosophers talk about are ever, ever applicable in real life. Um, whereas non-consequentialists say, like, no, ends don't always justify the means. Sure, if it's like a billion people at stake, maybe you need to sacrifice one. But if it's just 10 people, then <laughs> people have a right to life. And similarly for, like, you know, rights against other things, like side constraints against stealing or telling lies and so on. And I kind of think once you probably take moral uncertainty between the two. It's kind of one each for consequentialism and non-consequentialism, where as per the consequentialist, you, like morality becomes very demanding um, because it's like, okay, I could spend money on myself or I could give it to help others. Well, the non-consequentialist says it's permissible either way. The consequentialist says, oh no, it's wrong if you don't give it. So under moral uncertainty, the best compromise is to, to give the money. On the other hand, for side constraints, I think that non-consequentialism like, you know, weighs quite heavily there, mm. where let's say it's you know, sacrificing one to save two others. You know, consequentialist at least does say, yeah, it's, you ought to do that. The non-consequentialist, though, in my view, is saying, like, oh, it's really wrong to do that. Yeah. And so at least often 
you should take side, like, you know, given that you're giving some weight to non-consequentialism, which I think you should, then you should take side constraints pretty seriously and often not act in a way that will like do the most good because it would involve like violating a right or like breaking some other moral side constraint. Yeah. I guess exactly how you aggregate between those two or how, how you figure out what the, what the, what the trade-off is in any specific case is yeah, a, ve- a vexed much, issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's much more complicated, but at least yeah. it points in a particular direction. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and that relates to the final aspect of fanaticism that you mentioned of like, oh, well, could like concern for the long-term future, could that just justify anything? What about atrocities? Like, you know, people sometimes kind of associate like, oh, concern for the long-term with oh, what about kind of, you know, dictators who had some, like, ideology or vision? I think, like, utopian, like, I don't know, utopianism, people can think that's kind of dangerous. I think the key thing there is just strongly distinguishing between, like, okay, do you have a positive vision of a good future? Long-termers often don't even necessarily, you don't even have to have that, like, apart from a very vague sense of, like, well, the future people, could be really good. it could be really good, we want people to be happier, like, want people to be reasoning about things. But even if you do have a utopian vision, like, that does not mean that like any ends justify the means. Mm. And like one thing we've learned through history is just people who are like, you know, doing bad things for like a greater good is like, that doesn't go well. And so I think like both on pure consequentialist grounds, taking extremely like cooperative kind of common sense approaches to doing good is just like exactly right. And so we, and we've seen this like with the certain animal rights campaigning. So there were like extreme wings of the animal rights movement that would like send bombs in the mail to MPs and things. That was just so bad for the animal movement, as well as just like, you know, morally wrong in and of itself. And so similarly, and like, yeah, so similarly just like, look, we have this like good arguments in favor of taking the long term seriously, like we should promote that. We should take these like cooperative actions that make the short term better, as well as making the long term better. Like that seems really good, as well as having like, moral reasons not to violate side constraints in pursuit of kind of a greater good. So I think that's like really overdetermined. Yeah. Yeah. Every so often I complain that there's kind of no strain of utopianism in society anymore, or like people just focus constantly on dystopias and don't really think about how the future could be far better. Yeah. And I think one, one reason for that is that utopianism has developed a very bad reputation because in the past it's been used to justify all kinds of horrific, horrific things or it's motivated people to engage yeah. in horrific actions as part of political revolutions that basically 100% of the time yeah. <laughs> backfire and are really catastrophic. So, yeah, I think the lack of positive visions for the future, like even sometimes among long-termists or like even for like sure. not, that, yeah. not that much interest in spelling out how the future could be far better, I think there's, there's downsides to that. But a really positive thing is that this horrific history of utopianism in the past has really inoculated us against... The this idea that you can justify atrocities or that you could justify really like otherwise immorally bad actions because the consequences will be good. Like it's so hard to point to people who yeah, advocate for, for sure. that in practice. Um, yeah. Even if like in, in some sense their philosophy might imply it, uh, it's just no, no one's willing to go there. Yeah. And I do think, I agree, like it would be good to have more of a stain of positive utopian thinking. So a little side project I've done with the book is um, a project called Future Voices, which is working with authors to write short stories that are voices of future people. And they can write on anything, but I think there will be like a bit of a positive bent precisely to fill this gap where there's a lot of dystopian fiction. And so Ian McEwen, uh, who wrote Atonement, is one of the authors. Jeanette Winterson is another, and Naomi Alderman. And I'm quite excited to see how it turns out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as you know, I turned to a little bit of dabbling in yeah. utopian <laughs> fiction as well, which is um, there's an Easter egg in the book that you can maybe find. But 
uh, yeah, but then that's just like a very different thing from this like ends justify the means um, mentality, which is systematically very bad, I think. Yeah. Okay. So we've dug into two strands of objection there, the fanaticism as well as the intractability. Because yet to keep this interview at a sane length, we've had to yeah. somewhat constrain what objections we're, we're going to bite into today. Are, are there any other ones that you are kind of keen to highlight or at least like flag for the, for the audience? I mean, going back to uh, previous discussion, this idea of just, oh, maybe we're really missing things and like missing crucial moral or empirical insights. And so uh, therefore just, you know, generations to come maybe that's ourselves later in our life or maybe it's like the people who take up the torch for trying to do good they can do even more good than us i think like that's a really important consideration yeah. and can affect kind of you know how much of our resources do we want to go all in on the priorities that seem most pressing now and i think it's a lot but i still also think we should be trying to create a kind of community and movement such that people can you know in 50 years time once they've learned a lot more take action to make the better world better, even if that's in a way that's kind of not what we would call long-termist now, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, let's push on to a specific chapter of the book that I, that I thought was particularly interesting. And I guess in particular, it covered a bunch of stuff that we'd never talked about on the show before. So I was uh, uh, keen, to, keen to dive into it. We had, we had quite a smorgasbord of chapters and topics that we could go into uh, and just had to basically uh, pick one. And this is the one I went with. So yeah, one trajectory that you contemplate in What We Are the Future is the scenario where, say, you know, there's no big global disaster or anything like that. The future is, in a sense, like a little bit boring compared yeah. to the stuff that we've been talking about. But rather, instead, we just see technological and economic and possibly cultural improvement like peter out and stagnate for an extended period of time, you know, over the next 100 or 200 years. So it's kind of, yeah, a stagnation scenario. Uh, I, think, I think the chapter is called Stagnation. Yeah. yeah. Why should we think that that might happen? So the core argument is this. From the data, it looks like, so, yeah, what causes economic progress to occur, technological advancement? Well, it's just having more ideas, ideas about, like, yeah, how you combine raw materials into, into new things. And uh, a significant amount is just how much of development of new ideas is, like, how much time are people trying to, like, develop new ideas, um, which we could think of as just, like, you know, fraction or, like, total number of person hours going towards R&D. And just we kind of keep that as an abstraction. What's the story then of like why we have had pretty, at least in frontier economies, like fairly steady kind of technological progress, like over the last couple of centuries, like so fairly steady um, economic growth. It turns out there's two things that have been going on and they approximately balance each other out. On the one hand, ideas have been getting harder and harder to find. So this kind of qualitatively makes sense, like, Einstein was able to develop, um, you know, theory of general relativity, just sitting in his attic in his spare time as a patent clerk, or at least for his special relativity. But it was really just like armchair reasoning. Now the kind of latest advance in physics is like, it requires like a multi-billion dollar um, Hadron Collider. The advance of like discovering the Higgs boson is like, you know, it's really pretty minor compared to like theories of special and general rel relativity. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the returns per dollar or per hour have gone way, way, way down gone, in physics. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. But then there's arguments, so there's this paper, our ideas getting harder to find, suggests this is true just really quite generally. So that's one thing. So ideas are kind of getting exponentially harder to discover. At the same time, we've been throwing exponentially more time at doing the equivalent of R&D. So there's two ways in which that's happened. One is just the population has grown a lot. 
So by approximately 7 billion over the last couple of hundred years. Um, so we've just got a larger labor pool for people to be doing R&D. And then secondly, we've been putting a larger and larger proportion of the population onto R&D. So the proportion of the population who are, for example, trying to design new computer chips, um, it's just, I don't can't remember that quantitatively, but it's like tens, maybe hundreds of times greater than it was just even just a few decades ago. And that's been required to keep Moore's law um, going. Yeah. And I guess so. more broadly across society, so we've had population growth, but we've also had explosive growth in the fraction of the population that has finished high school and then has finished university and then has finished PhDs and people who are doing knowledge jobs. Exactly. That's gone from basically a negligible fraction to like quite a significant number now. Yeah, exactly. And so that's been the kind of trajectory so far. Looking ahead, do we expect these trends to continue? Well, population projections are that population will plateau about 11 billion. You can argue with precisely the number, but the world as a whole is only barely above the placement now. Um, In fact, it's below the placement in all continents apart from Africa. So that method by increasing even further the number of researchers is, that's going to level out. And then secondly, well, how much larger the percentage of the the population can be put towards R&D? Well, that's got a natural cap of like 100%. (laughs) Probably the actual cap is like much lower than that. But again, we know that that can't increase indefinitely. And so the prediction from the kind of leading long-line growth model, like semi-endogenous growth theory, is that given this plateauing of fertility and the limited gains you can have by increasing the proportion of the population dedicated to R&D, you get declining growth rates that then kind of plateau and you get kind of a long-run stagnation. Yeah, I guess another reason why someone might think that this this could happen or, or, or will happen is that so if you look at if you look over long periods in history, I guess you have the hunter gatherer era in which mm-hmm. the kind of the human population or productivity was rising very slowly, and this was then reflected in like very gradually growing global human population. Yeah. Then you had kind of a farming era where where growth rates rose to a new level, but they were still very low by today's standards. Uh, and so again, over the, over the long haul, over like ten thousand years, you had very gradual growth in, in, in human population. And then we have kind of the industrial revolution, which like really kicks things into the, the gear that we're familiar with, where you have like things are really changing over one over a single person's lifetime after 1750. There's all kinds of new things going on. Global economic growth rates are something like yep, 3 or 4% yep. per year. Then, however, we kind of have, a lot of people have argued that since about 1970, the rate of productivity improvement or the rate of innovations that are actually useful has declined relative to what it was between 1800 and uh, 1970. And so possibly we're already seeing the effect that you're talking about where you know we can't increase the number of people doing interesting R&D quickly enough to offset the fact that we're running out, <laughs> that the ideas are getting harder and harder and harder to find. That might have already bitten to some degree. That's right. And so, um, yeah, economists measure kind of technological progress in this metric called the total factor of productivity. And that's shown pretty consistent downward trend over, as I understand it, the last 50 years. Um, so that's what the kind of data suggests. And then there's this qualitative argument of just, if you look at all of the changes that happened between, let's say, 1870 and 1920, and between 1920 and 1970, just like each interval, just enormous, like electrification is huge, indoor plumbing is huge, um, like, so revolutions in social structure as well and how people were coordinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What Sorry. are you thinking of in particular? Oh, well, I was thinking, I mean, 
uh, like going from 1800 to 1970, it's like we've gone from a world where almost everyone lives in a monarchy and like yeah. almost yeah, no yeah, one, yeah. no one in a democracy to a world where like both we have like communism and like liberal democracy. It was like big changes in Huge how people think changes, about how yeah. humanity ought to be organized. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then since from 1970 to 1920, there's been huge changes in communications and information technology, undoubtedly, but then pretty incremental changes everywhere else. Yeah. And so some people argue that, uh, yeah, that shows we're already, you know, in a great stagnation or approaching a great stagnation. I'm sympathetic to that. Having said that, that's not necessary for the argument to work. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So... I guess as long-termists, thinking about uh, very long-term, you know, you might think, does it really matter that much whether like the next 20 or 30 or 40 years are kind of a bit quiet technologically? Yeah, what, why should we care from a long-termist perspective about the possibility that there is a stagnation for you know, decades, possibly centuries? There are two reasons, I think, two main reasons. One is that if we get stuck in what Carl Sagan called the time of perils, like a period of heightened extinction risk, then that increases total extinction risk. So... Imagine that it's 50 years' time, we now have weapons that can create engineered pathogens. We don't have the defenses against them. That requires more advanced technology. And then we get stuck there. Then, I don't know, let's say it's 0.1% annual risk. Or if we get stuck there for centuries or even longer, then that adds up to you know really significant risk overall. That will never make it out. Yeah, know. exactly. So that's one reason is it just it's a kind of existential risk factor. The second is kind of more unclear in how it goes, but it's this values consideration again, where you might think that, yeah, what are the values that are predominant today, what are the values that kind of restart civilization in hundreds of years, or restart, sorry, restart economic progress in hundreds of years? Uh, I mean, you might think they're better, like perhaps like that's a chance for kind of moral progress to kind of march on. But again, if you think that liberal democracy is um, somewhat fragile, like it's not a guarantee at all, you might well think that actually the values are worse um, over this time period after like a long stagnation. Yeah, I think this argument is kind of famously made in, uh, what is it, Benjamin Friedman's Benjamin book? Friedman, yeah. The, he, the moral consequences of economic growth, I think. Exactly, yeah. yeah. His argument is a little bit different. Okay. He's just saying, well, when basically like when the economy is growing, People are happy. Um, you get like cooperation because they can. You can work together, and you're going to like grow the pie kind of together. Yeah. If the economy is kind of stagnant, then people start you know, bickering about worse. shares. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's plausible. And he claims the kind of evidence supports him. Mm. You know, I think it's plausible at least. Um, I'm not sure. I'm very confident in that hypothesis. Yeah. And, um, and how is how is uh, your theory different than what uh, Friedman said? Uh, well, mine's different because what Friedman's talking about is very short timescales, really, mm. like years or decades of, um, whereas I'm talking about, and within, like, say, a liberal democracy, whereas I'm saying, okay, over the course of hundreds of years, the predominant social structures could be extremely different. So let's say we do think that, you know, liberal democracy is this kind of contingent, fragile thing. Well, maybe we have, you know, it's dictatorship or authoritarian rule that... Um, Oh, so your argument it, isn't that... It evolves in like hundreds of years' time. I see. So your argument is less that the stagnation will specifically cause us to cease to become, but merely that if we wait for ages, then things could get worse. Uh, yeah, and like, absolutely. in as much as we think humanity is in a reasonable position now, perhaps yeah. we don't want to roll the dice and just see how things are in 2300. Yeah. And in the book, I'm actually, I just like come out as agnostic on like the values question. Mm. I think I more want to point to this as like, this is a really important consideration <laughs> either yeah. way and maybe like more research needed. 
because it's a big deal. It's just that I'm not like super confident what the sign is. Yeah. Okay. What probability do you place on a stagnation scenario of some sort, like actually happening? Yeah. In the book, in this embedded footnote, um, I gave it kind of one in three. I, I think I probably that's a little high now. Um, like as in over the course of centuries, kind of tending towards stagnation. Yeah. Um, but not like, you know, wildly high. Like I think it's a scenario like very plausibly on the table. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you think that we should or could plausibly do now that will help in the stagnation scenario that doesn't make things worse in other scenarios? Well, I think it maybe is like a reason, you know, there's this question of like, should you speed up or slow down AI progress? And that's like very difficult question in general, like lots of factors on either side. This is kind of one factor on that side, on the side of like it going faster because... Or at least uh, like not actively shutting it down or slowing it down. Oh yeah, exactly. Like there's, you know, another risk from delaying it massively where, um, you know, these arguments I've given like, oh, how on earth could you increase kind of the search, you know, the amount of labor going into R&D, like when we've plateaued? Well, one answer would be like you've automated it. Yeah. And so effectively you have like AI researchers. And then I just think we're off to the races. Then it's like, yeah. I mean, to the, be honest, the stagnation in- world is like a is like a long timeline, AI timeline as well, for sure. I see. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, producing artificial intelligence that can do its own R&D is kind of the main path out of stagnation, or at least the main way to speed things up again, because it doesn't seem like we're on track to figure out how to uh, get people to have like massive families and grow population again, even if that were desirable. Nor does it seem like we have a ton of potential to you know, increase the number of PhD students 10 or 100 fold uh, in future or super educated people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately it's about AI and yeah. like, when do we get it? So yeah, the stagnation worries in general are like long timeline worries. So I think we'd get like a extra century of technological progress is my understanding given the standard models. Do we get to the point of time at which we can automate R&D by then? Um, oh, wait, hold if, on. You, you're saying, I guess we can project this, can't we? Because we can say, well, population is going to kind of be like this. This is how we expect uh, education to shift. Exactly. And then you yeah. might just, and you're saying like after the equivalent of 100 more years of the growth rate that we have now, things just basically cap out. Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding. Huh, okay. Cool, yeah. Go, sorry, <laughs> get, carry on. Yeah, I, I hadn't so, heard that one, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a question of do we get to automated R&D in that point in time? And yep, you know, pretty good chance we do, but maybe we don't. Then what are the solutions to ensure we don't stagnate? Like, for example, what we could be doing now is like, okay, what things can we do that like increase the chance that we do get to the point at which you can have automated R&D? So there are some things you could do, like, you know, there's still enormous numbers of people around the world who are not able to meaningfully contribute to the kind of the search frontier because they're born into poverty. They just don't have the opportunities, but yet they could make huge contributions. Uh, so that's a really big thing. Yeah, as you kind of intimated, attempts to increase population size. Um, so there's a weird thing at the moment where people are having fewer kids than they want. Yeah. And so even just getting people to have the number of kids they want yeah. <laughs> would be like a huge 
you know, a huge positive. Yeah, th- th- but- this actually shows up in like, uh, I saw a graph recently showing, um, you know, household income as against how many children you have. And perhaps not shockingly, it initially goes down as I suppose, you know, people get more career focused up until the point where they're like upper yep. middle class. And then as you get like very wealthy, then it goes back up again. People start having more children, okay. presumably because now they actually have the financial slack uh, and perhaps they have the leisure time uh, okay. from, from being okay. sufficiently, uh, you know, earning enough per hour that now they can have kind of the family size that they originally wanted. That's okay. That's very. I didn't know that fact, but it is very hard to increase family sizes if you're a government. So Hungary has spent five percent of its GDP trying to incentivize larger families, and I think they moved the fertility rate from one point five to one point seven. Okay, it's like the impact. I see. <laughs> so it's like very hard indeed. Yeah. Um, I think another thing one could do, though, in combination with this, like you know, finding the most, you know, finding the potential research talent from all around the world, is also just having kind of more accelerated programs that are you know, things that are just much more targeted. You know, we do this with athletics. You know, Mm. these scouts, they go all around the world, they try and find the most promising people and they get put on these most promising footballers. They get put on these fast tracks to become professional athletes. Um, You could do the same, but with professional researchers and they get directed towards areas of R&D that seem like potentially likely to kind of pay off in terms of, you know, further technological Mm. progress. Yeah, interesting. Okay, as we're getting to the end of the conversation... Probably, yeah, it's worth uh, turning our minds to what this might all mean for like what you and I and listeners, I guess, should be getting up to. I mean, yeah, there's tons of ideas out there about this and a decent fraction of them we've talked about in lots of lots of previous episodes when it comes to bio, AI, you know, preventing war. I guess one we haven't talked that much, that much about that you've flagged is uh, improving clean energy uh, research. But yeah, it'd be good to do some episodes on that. Yeah, I suppose... To try to add, add some value in this episode above and beyond all of the other resources that we have on this question of what does long-termism imply, how do your personal ideas for what we ought to prioritize like, differ from other people who research or, or write about long, long-termism? Yeah, so I think I'm even more in favor. I mean, it's tough because people are already pretty in favor of this, but I think even more in favor of growth of effective altruism hmm. as an idea in a community where you know, I think values promotion is important. Growing EA is uh, kind of two things. One, it's a sort of investment where you've got more resources to put good things in the future. But it's also, I think, like a path, you know, hopefully to a good future where imagine a world in 200 years, let's say, where there's just this general culture of people are motivated by impartial moral concern. They use evidence and careful reasoning to try and work out what that is. When they disagree with people, they have like these level arguments that really try to understand the other point of view. When the disagreement's intractable, there's like a strong default of cooperation. Or compromising. And, and com- or compromise. And that's just a global culture. It's looking pretty good. Yeah. I'm like, feeling kind of <laughs> happy about like the world there yeah. compared to now. So, uh, yeah, I think that becomes a kind of even better thing. Another thing that I'm particularly concerned about is... Uh, yeah, preserving and promoting liberal democracies where, you know, again, I had this consideration of, well, how do you evaluate nuclear war? Do you just look at the extinction risk? I think no. I think the fact that it would be a loss of potential just wiping of liberal democracy off the map, um, I think is... It's a downside. Huge. <laughs> yeah, huge <laughs> downside. Um, I think that also means for like other things that might seem like very broad activities like looking at India and like helping Indian kind of economic growth as the world's largest economy. Also perhaps, you know, guiding away from kind of Hindu nationalism and like some of the kind of, yeah, more authoritarian strains in kind of Indian political thought could be like a very important thing. Um, Similarly, like authoritarian strains in the US too. Um, Mm. 
not going to name any names. <laughs> um, uh, so those things like seem extremely important to me too. And then, yeah, I think, I'm not sure quite how much this pops out of the book, but I'm also just like generally more concerned by war, I think, than perhaps other people are, where, you know, what's my credence that there's a great, you know, equivalent of World War III, like a war between great powers in our lifetimes, I don't know, 40% or something. Wow, that's high. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's just... Well, I suppose that's well, the base rate. But... It's kind of the base rate. It's also, yeah. if you look at Metaculus and the predictions that it makes um, and extend it over the course of... Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe lifetime. I was thinking by 2100, but um, I don't know, you know, one in three or something. It's like really surprisingly high. And then I just like, yeah, then I have this view, um, just a lot of things go a lot worse. So I guess like part of my, um, you know, I, I do have lower kind of existential risk numbers than some other people, like such as Toby. And part of that is just this view that like society, like it's really messy and can be hard, but like is self-correcting in the sense like, okay, there's, you know, risks for novel pathogens, but then you've also got people like Kevin Esfeld, um, uh making sure that we reduce those risks. And there's this big asymmetry where it's like, look, people don't want to catastrophically die. And so those arguments are going to like systematically kind of win over coming decades. Yeah. Then, I don't know, I feel like when people are in like a state of going to war, like all bets are off. I see. You have yeah. something like the USSR biological weapons program employed 60,000 people really, really devoting itself to try and figure out the like nastiest, nastiest viruses you can. Yeah, it's like, I mean, terrible for the world and also probably terrible for the USSR. And yet because of the kind of Cold War situation, they were able to make mistakes like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, uh, again, like I think in general, people act like fairly rationally in their own self-interest. Again, like in war kind of scenarios, even that can go um, yeah. <laughs> go out the window to some extent. And not just the fact that they're now making decisions with stakes where it's like, oh, okay, we're maybe just like off the map unless we do this crazy thing. Yeah. Is it is it bad that when you say there's like a 40% chance of us having a great power war uh, in in our lifetimes, I like my first thought is like, why am I saving so much for retirement? <laughs> I just think like, I need to spend more on my holidays. <laughs> I'm saving yeah, that, for a future that won't exist. Yeah, that's probably bad. Okay. <laughs> I think your thought should be like... It's a little bit self-focused, like, isn't it? I think yeah. your thought should maybe be like, yeah, let's make that war not happen. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Yep. Um, probably won't succeed at that. So I can definitely pull money out of my retirement account. Um, yeah, where, where do you donate uh, personally? Uh, yeah, so my last donation was to the Lead Elimination Exposure Project. Nice. Um, which is quite interesting because, I mean, I was doing that. I mean, there's two grounds. So for those who don't know, it's a new organization incubated within the Effective Altruism community, which tries to eliminate lead paint and ultimately like lead exposure from all sorts of sources. Um, lead exposure is just really bad. It's like really bad from a health perspective, also lowers people's IQ, lowers their general cognitive functioning, some evidence that kind of increases violence and social dysfunction. And then LEAP, as they're called, have just already had like a ton of traction. So going to Malawi and basically just getting the government of Malawi to enforce um, anti-lead regula yeah, regulation. regulation against um, lead paint. So it seems like, oh, wow, they're really making traction. Uh, this is an example of kind of, you know, very broad long-termist action where I think this sort of intervention is maybe kind of different from certain other sorts of global health and development programs where, yeah, if I imagine a world that's just like people are a bit smarter, they don't have, you know, mild brain damage from uh, lead exposure that um, has lowered their IQ and, you know, made them like more impulsive, more violent, just like broadly seems like a much better society. 
Uh, and then that was the first argument. And then the second was just, I think it's really good for EAs to be like doing things <laughs> in the world, like yeah. really making it better, achieving concrete wins. And yeah, getting uh, skills. Yeah. yeah. And I'm aware that my donation is like, you know, has a symbolic value as well as just being a place where money kind of goes. And so, you know, I really wanted to kind of recognize and award that. Um, but then, and then the final thing is just that, yeah, that actually seemed to me like in being like in real need of money and further funding in a way that like lots of the, maybe the more core kind of narrowly targeted long-termist work is not currently. Um, and so my sense is like a lot of the best giving opportunities are more in the like stuff that's a bit kind of broader because that really hasn't been like as much of a focus of uh, grant makers. Yeah. Okay, well, we have sufficiently exhausted you. <laughs> so it's time to, time to release you back into the wild. Last time, in our last interview, we spoke a bunch about potatoes and your obsession with potatoes, mm. uh, and you justified that. Is there any kind of topic that you've recently gotten obsessed with, uh, which has maybe uh, you know, taken the baton from potatoes in terms of a pointless mess of interests? Uh, well, and I should say the potato stuff, I, in the last podcast, I made a comment about this persistent study about how pot- potatoes had this enormous long-run impact, and I commented, oh, it probably doesn't check out. Yeah. Turns out it checks out. <laughs> so my interest in potatoes was vindicated all along. It's the most important technology ever invented nice. among that, um, among the most important. Well, we'll go, go and issue a correction to that episode. Okay, please do. Um, another topic that I got, yeah, really down the rabbit hole and slightly obsessed with, again, coincidentally during pandemic lockdown period, <laughs> um, was megafauna, in particular extinct megafauna, where... I do include this at the start of chapter two of the book. Yeah. But, you know, we normally think that megafauna, that is animals that are larger than about, you know, human size or larger, I think it's above 45 kilograms. There are a lot of them in Africa. So you've got rhinoceroses, hippopotami, giraffes, just diversity of like very large animals, um, elephants, but not really as much in other places in the world. It's like much, much, much fewer. And you might think, well, that's because of something to do with kind of Africa's ecological niche or something. Mm. No, no. It's because of humans. (laughs) It's because human beings evolved in Africa. We co-evolved with these large animals. And so they evolved to escape humans as a predator. Whoa. But then there was the great migration out of Africa. Humans in evolutionary times very quickly spread to all corners of the globe and systematically, when humans arrived in a certain area, yeah. wasn't that long afterwards <laughs> that the large, um, most of the large animals went extinct. And, okay, this is interesting for a few, in a few ways. One is it's just an example of early humans having extremely persistent effects. Because, again, like with the human species, once some other species is extinct, it's very hard to come back from that. Possible, we, you know, there are efforts to de-extinct um, certain animals. A second, though, is just the animals were wild. I mean, like, in South America, there were the glyptodonts. They're my personal favorite, which are just their sister family of the armadillos, but they're the size of a car. (laughs) So, like, a Ford Fiesta would weigh, like, you know, somewhere between, like, 800 kilograms, even up to two tons. And, yeah, covered in this carapace of, like, hard shell. Humans would kill them and, like, use the shell for, that's the hypothesis, as well as for meat, kill them for, um, like having this protective armor, yeah. Yeah, armor essentially. Uh, they were blind during the day, which is like bizarre. Um, so like just adapted to low light. So that was just like one example of these megafauna. There was also the giant ground sloth, sloth megatherium. Yeah. Uh, How big that, are they? 
uh, two tons. Okay. Um, <laughs> so again, like African elephant in size, but I a see. ground sloth could stand on two legs in order because they were herbivorous to get kind of leaves and trees. Did it move? Re- I guess we don't know if it moved really slowly, but yeah, yeah, yeah great question. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Does it show up in the fossil yeah. record? Um, many kind of elephant-like creatures in South America. Um, you know, camels in Asia, in Europe. So you know. If they hadn't gone extinct, we were like, oh, go to Spain, go on a camel, you know, yeah. on a camel ride. Hast eagles, I mean, they were actually a little later, so it went extinct in 1400. The largest eagles, largest bird species we know of, they would hunt moa, um, these large flightless birds. Yeah. I think moa themselves were like really quite large. The number I've got in my head is that they were like 200 kilograms, which is like fairly big. But um, yeah, hast eagles were like 20 um no, I think like half the weight of a human or something and like okay. 2.6 meter wingspan. I see. And they would hunt these like enormous flightless animal. birds. Huh. Yeah. But then the moa got um, made extinct by humans and I then see. so the hast eagles died off too. Right. And so in these cases, it's not just that humans were, you know, necessarily killing the animals directly, but they were just having just... untold ecological damage. I see. And so there's often this narrative of like, oh, they're kind of like early humans, like before we had technology, we were living in accordance with nature. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we were responsible for the extinction of most megafauna. Yeah. Um, we're burning vast swathes of forest land in order to like make hunting easier. I mean, it's just actually like terrifying. Yeah. And then the most striking of all is the other homo species. So, you know, multiple other, yeah, multiple other human species. So the Denisovans, um, Neanderthals, Homo floriensis, and a few others. And there, yeah, Homo sapiens just... In some cases, Denisovans and Neanderthals, there was some interbreeding, but again, outcompeting. And this is, again, like it's a kind of contingent fact that there's only one human species. Yeah. Like, again, this is just kind of, there's not necessarily a lesson here, apart from just boggling that like, we could have had a world where there were like two different human species. Think how like different our morality would have been. In particular, like there's a strain of moral thought, which really places humans on this pedestal far above other animals. Well, if there'd been like two human species, would that have happened? You know, maybe not. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I think what I take away is that humans are cold blooded killers. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the. Or at least, have you read yeah. about persistence hunting? No. Okay. So, oh, this is the thing where they outrun them, right? Yeah. yeah this yeah. is another thing I got a little bit of yeah, test by. Um, <laughs> yeah. This is humans are like actually very strange physically. Yeah. Um, so we're one of the only creatures that sweat, us and horses. And we're incredibly good long distance runners. Mm. And humans evolved in significant part to hunt animals over very long time periods. So you're a zebra. Um, I'm an early human. We're on the kind of, you know, plains in Africa. I will see you and I'll start chasing you down. It's like 11 a.m., like blazing hot sun. And I just start jogging, jogging after you slowly. <laughs> you run away yeah. out of the horizon. I can track you. But not just that, like, some zebra is running away from me. I can, I can identify one particular zebra and how that's different from others. And I just keep jogging after you. You see me again on the horizon. You run away. This happens again and again over the course of many hours until you just collapse from heat stroke and exhaustion. And then I stand over you, strangle you to death, and then eat you. Terrifying. Like, utterly terrifying. Yeah. And that was early human hunting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again... That's what we're born to do. That's what we're born to do, exactly. And it's like, that's partly why we're, yeah, that's why we're such good long distance runners. We also had advantage of like very early tool use. So being able to carry water, like we didn't have to like log around. Yeah, water over, you know, 
with our bodies, yeah. but at the same time, we could carry it some distance. Yeah. Um, was like very helpful for this. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I, feel like no. I, want, yeah. <laughs> I know. I think this is just like well, enormous this is a amounts. positive note to end the podcast on. <laughs> we usually try to go for something fun and positive, yeah, to you know, inspire people to action. Um, I guess the thing I'm going to go away and do is figure out uh, people, you know, people always say, yeah, humans lived in like harmony with nature. I feel like I want to modify that to humans lived in harmony with nature after they killed everything that they could. Yeah. Then what was left <laughs> that they couldn't get rid of, no matter what they did, that they lived in harmony with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here was. Um, Another aspect of it was funny was just how incredibly... So we were doing this fact-checking. We really want everything to be rigorous. Probably the issue that we got the most heat on out of the whole book, not abolition of slavery, you know, that's a like, sensitive Small topic. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the question of what killed off the megafauna, huh. where um, I really think that if you look at the literature, it's just very, very strong arguments that humans played a decisive role. I'm not claiming, like, it was a human cause for every single megafaunal extinction, um, but the large majority. A lot of people really hate that. And they claim it's like climate change. There's this kind of current of thought that we should not like overemphasize like humans. Mm, like, yeah. But actually, I think like the more I learned about um, kind of evolution and early human history and cultural evolution is just like actually humans are just like radically different species. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've been having this enormous environmental impact since the first evolution of since Homo sapiens like first evolved and spread yeah. across the globe. Wow. Here's to that. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Will McCaskill, uh, and the book is What We Are the Future. Uh, thanks thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thank you. All right, a few closing notices now. This notice I didn't tease at the start because it's just for people dedicated enough to make it to the end of a long episode like this. I'm looking to chat to five or ten randomly selected subscribers to the show in order to get a better sense of who's out there and what you're looking to get out of all of these episodes. If you're open to helping out with that, go to 80,000hours.org slash podcast chat, lowercase or one word. Put your name and email in there. And if the random number generator picks you out, then I'll send you a link to book a 20-minute call with me at some hopefully convenient time. I look forward to virtually meeting a few of you and getting a better understanding of who's really listening in on all of these conversations. Second, as I mentioned in the intro, we're extending the closing date for this year's user survey because we haven't gotten as many responses as we need or hope for, or indeed as we know are out there. So you've got two more days to get those in, which means the end of Wednesday. It's important to fill out because the user survey is the main way we figure out what among all of the many things 80,000 Hours does are most helpful and which are not useful or potentially even, even harmful. You can fill it out at 80,000hours.org slash survey. Naturally, the team here has to be constantly thinking about what to write next, what roles to hire for, which podcast episode to produce next, and so on. And your input can be extremely valuable in terms of doing that. The previous survey helped get me working on the podcast full time, and people telling us what they wanted from future episodes got us to interview David Denkenberger a second time, and to cover new problems in interviews with Cal Newport and Nina Sheik, among others. We have a fair few things going on at 80,000 Hours, including this show, uh, our other show, 80K After Hours, uh, our job board, our various different kinds of research articles, our one-on-one advising, and our marketing efforts now in order to reach new folks. So prioritization can be a challenge, and there's a lot of topics you might be able to give us useful advice on. Normally, we only do this once a year, but we actually skipped it in 2021 so that we could stay focused on just delivering more of our projects. But that means we're particularly keen to know how things have shifted for users over the last two years, during a time when things have changed for 80,000 hours, we've grown and changed a bunch, and I imagine they've changed for most of you as well. For that reason, if you filled out the survey a few years ago, it's pretty likely that your plans and opinions about us have changed since then. So if you're open to filling it out again, we would really appreciate it. 
We're keen to hear how 80,000 hours might have affected your plans for doing good, both in your career and elsewhere, and to get feedback from anyone who's engaged with us but hasn't in any way changed their plans. On average, people take about 25 minutes to fill it out. If you were moving fast or had simple things to say, you could probably get through it in 10 or 15 minutes. On the other hand, someone with a more complex story and subtle things they wanted to get through to us would, of course, take longer. However much you write, I can promise you every entry gets read all the way through here by multiple people. That's 80,000hours.org slash survey. Pushing on, as I mentioned in the intro, 80,000 Hours is currently looking for a new marketer. From the start of the year, we've begun investing quite a lot more heavily in getting the word out about what we have to offer, since that's a very natural way to do more good as an organization. Since then, we have found a few things that we think are working, and so we want to try doing more of them. But to make that happen, we need more people focused on marketing than just Bella Forrestal. Someone who'd be right for this role would be pretty excited about effective altruism or 80,000 hours mission, and they might have a background in marketing, especially digital or influencer marketing, but our experience is that that's not so essential, and we do want to hear from people without jobs like that on their CV as well. This isn't exactly a traditional marketing position since we are a nonprofit and we're not actually selling anything in exchange for, for money, so we would love you to apply even if you aren't otherwise thinking of yourself as a professional marketer per se. The role is full-time. Ideally, it would be done in person at our office in London, and it would pay around £60,000 assuming you had little or no prior experience, but more if you do. If that piques your interest at all, you can find plenty more about the position at 80,000hours.org slash marketer. Keep in mind, applications close pretty soon on the 23rd of August. All right, kudos to you if you stuck with us through all of that. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris, audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.